Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're obsessed with her, and you're obsessed with her daughter! Right, easy, Geraldo. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking the two Corys, we're talking surf punks, and we're talking a sweaty, shirtless saxophonist. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and we're talking Death by Stereo! Oh my god, yes. Forgot all about it. <laughs> I, I, I didn't remember any of this movie. Everyone, we are talking Joel Schumacher's The Lost Boys. We have a queer-coded horror film directed by a queer director. And mm-hmm. Joe, I know we've talked about Joel Schumacher on the Patreon, but have we covered one of his films on the podcast before? Oh my gosh, you're putting me on the spot. I know. <laughs> Listeners, I let us know. <laughs> I don't think we have. Yeah, I think we just did a Patreon mini-sode shortly after he passed because you had kind of marathoned a bunch of his Mm -hmm. films that were missing from kind of a gap list of yours. And it's a really fun episode. I always forget how fucking versatile he is. Like, he's done a lot of horror. He's done a lot of thrillers. But none of these films ever feel the same like he's an interesting director that way no he's like the opposite of an auteur like honestly i i I don't think there's a style that schumacher has where i can look at a movie and be like oh yeah that's totally schumacher but Mm -hmm. and and while his quality is up and down like it is a roller coaster of quality across his movies (laughs) Indeed, indeed you're right though i do all i do appreciate how he just tried different things every time i mean again like Mm -hmm. he goes from saint elmo's fire which is aka like college breakfast club to the lost boys to Mm -hmm. you know like doing john grisham thrillers to doing the batman movies and then yeah whatever he did in the 2000s but i will (laughs) i went to bat for it in that minisode on patreon and i will go to bat for it here y'all please check out his blood creek which is about nazi zombies type thing starring michael fassbender it is a not a great movie but it's a treat. But it's not The Lost Boys. <laughs> yeah, it sounded wild. Uh, I definitely still need to check it out. Maybe one of these days when we have a moment. But Trace, this yes. is our motherfucking 150th episode. Oh my god. <laughs> Seems like just yesterday we had our 100th episode. And actually it was a year ago today. Indeed. Yeah. Well, not today, yeah, it was, but it was a year well, ago. <laughs> yeah, it was a year ago. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know what, though? I don't think we want to talk about this movie alone, Joe. Because I know that you and I, and listeners, I mean, we've mentioned this before. Joe and I aren't super fans of the lost boys and i'm really excited to talk about why that is today so we brought in someone who is a fan of the lost boys there we go (laughs) everyone she is a co-host of black magic coven a podcast that discusses the supernatural paranormal ghost stories cryptids killers and haunted forbidden places you may have read her work at such sites like fangoria slash film and what to watch she is also my co-worker at my day job the austin chronicle and a former podcast guest in our episode on trick-or-treat from last year Please welcome Marissa Mirable. Hey, y'all. Thank you so much for having me on again. And congratulations on your 150th episode. That's amazing. Thank you so much. It's it's just been so easy. It's barely any work at all. 
<laughs> it's yeah, true. Just a little bit. <laughs> We're like one of those celebrity podcasts where we just speak into a mic and then it magically turns into like audio frequencies the very next day. <laughs> oh wait, no, it's nothing like that. It's so much work. And yet, <laughs> but we love. It's a job that we love. It's a job that we love. But Marissa, thank you for joining us for this and the Lost Boys. And honestly, let's kick this off. Yes. I sent you the list for this, and you were like, oh my god, The Lost Boys. Mm-hmm. Like, right off the bat. Mm-hmm. No hesitation. Mm-hmm. What? I, I, Joe and I are not blind to the fact that this film is very popular. I, I don't Would we call it a cult film? I feel like it's a more mainstream popularity. Uh, yeah, because it was successful at the box office when it came out, and then I just feel like it's been embraced by people since the 80s. Like, when you talk about horror films from the 80s, when you talk about vampire films, this is one that always seems to come up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this set the stage for vampire lore in the cinematic universe with vampire right? movies, just in general, um, in a lot of ways. But it's also very different, too. So there's this kind of blueprint that it set for vampire films, which is pretty cool. And mm-hmm. it's very, very 80s. Like, you yes. go, go back in time <laughs> when you watch this film. So if you were born in the 80s or grew up in the 80s, there's so much nostalgia there. It's mm. it's very um, comforting. <laughs> it's fun. Because, Marissa, you, you were born in the 80s, but you were probably born around the time this movie came out, right? <laughs> yeah, I was born in um, 86. Yeah. And I think it came out in, what, 89? 87. Oh, 87. Yeah, but I have an older brother, and I was introduced to older type films, like, before I probably should have been. Um, of course, and grew up yeah. on Yeah, I just grew <laughs> up on 80s films in general. So I feel like a lot of films that were in the 80s are more from, like my childhood and have a closer place in my heart than 90s films. So what is your connection to this film then? When did you first see it and why do you connect with this film? Oh, good Lord. Okay, so, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I think it was uh, my older brother, I think, had a poster of it in his room. And I remember looking at it and just being like, I mean, it was kind of a sexual awakening thing. I mean, these guys were hot. They were, yeah. I mean, they were beautiful and so attractive. And there's something really alluring about uh, just the poster art and how all the vampires and star are right there looking at you. And it has this, um, we'll talk about Jim Morrison later, but I don't know. I was just kind of struck by it. And I remember watching it and it was just, it was interesting because I was never scared of this movie ever. You know, I remember a couple of scenes in the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie that I would that scared me more than the Lost Boys <laughs> ever did. Okay, okay. That's great. Which is so weird <laughs> to kind of say because it's not scary at all. Mm-hmm. But this film, I don't know, I always just thought it was I always just had these mad crushes on these vampires and I thought they had the best lives and they had so much fun and I mean, you throw in like comic books Music, concerts, mm-hmm. you know, friends just partying all the time. Like, it just looked like a well, blast. That, and I loved it. 
That's the thing, though, right? I mean, I, I, I kind of talked to Joe about this before and about because neither one of us connect to this movie like its fans do. And I feel like a part of it is because Joe and I were very much rule followers. We are not of the punk counterculture <laughs> uh, group. And so mm-hmm. while I, I think but, but that's the thing. Like, I mean, like, you know, I break a rule. I, I like break out into a sweat. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a bad thing, though. That's not no, a bad I, thing. No, I don't think, but I, I think, I think that, because I think the appeal of this movie, you're right. Like, like you said, like, I mean, the tagline for this movie is sleep all day, party all night, never grow old, never die. It's fun to be a vampire. It's mm-hmm. serving this, like, yeah, this kind of punk aesthetic and like, yeah, we're a bunch of rule breakers. We're not following the rules of mainstream society. And I think maybe that's why I don't connect with it that much. Because I'm like, no, 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 no. Follow society, please. <laughs> oh, that's totally why I connected with it. Yeah. Even when I was little, like, I did not wear dresses. I hated the color pink. I did not listen to boy bands. You know, I was very against whatever was supposed to be expected of me by society in a lot of ways I still am I don't really like Mm. traditional roles and you know societal expectations but Mm. I mean that kind of rebellion started when I was really young so um I definitely I think related to that and just doing whatever you want staying up late having fun and partying with friends yes all the things (laughs) that I liked to do from a very very young age Yeah, that tagline sounds perfect for like describing you and what you were into. So clearly you were the target demographic of this movie. I was, I was. And you throw in the costume and the hair design and those boys and it's just like done. They're still cute. Rewatching it every time. I'm just like, man, I'm such a sucker for this movie. (laughs) Great. Style at the wazoo for sure. You're horny for this movie. Oh, yeah. Well, this yeah. movie is sexy. It's it undeniably sexy. sexy. Like, mm-hmm. vampires, always sexy at the best of times. Yeah, whether or not you are attracted to the rocker aesthetic is probably mm-hmm. a personal taste thing. And I'm imagining, Still Trace, am. that's... that. And I think, Trace, that's going to be one of the issues that you don't like because <laughs> these boys have long hair. Yeah. They look like rebels. They look like punks. That's not your kind of preferred twinky <laughs> young boy, clean-cut aesthetic. No, but but I will say I do find Keeper so Sutherland attractive in this film, but mm. none of the other vampires. <laughs> what fair. do you like about Kiefer that stands out to you? He has short hair. Uh, okay. <laughs> no, Controversially so, right? I, I do like the the bleached hair, although I guess he has kind of a pseudo mullet, right? Oh, he 100% a has a mullet. Bit, yeah, yes. yeah. I don't love that as much, but uh, Joe, <laughs> what is your connection to this movie? Because I feel like you and I might have similar ones. So weirdly enough, I actually saw this film quite late in life. So this was not on my radar very much. I missed a bunch of the 80s movies because I was more of a 90s child. So my sister was really good at indoctrinating me into kind of early 90s and beyond horror. But we missed a lot of the 80s. Uh, so I had to go back and catch up in a number of different instances. And this was always just one that I thought, oh, okay, like people talk about it. It's It's got a big following. And yet I was never very attracted to it. So I put it off until probably maybe my mid 20s. And I don't know if it was too much hype or, oh, this is a classic film. You have to love it. Mm-hmm. But I watch it and I think it's fine. There's a lot of things I really like about it. But overall, I just don't find it all that engaging 
Like I can understand the appeal for other people, but it doesn't quite do it for me. Mm-hmm. My dad talked about this movie a lot. It wasn't one that he like loved a lot, but I just remember him always talking about The Lost Boys. And I think it was because, and this is the weird thing, my dad loves St. Elmo's Fire. Like fucking, mm-hmm. I think it's his favorite movie in the world. He, whenever we have like a fa- our family get together, he's always like, do you want to watch St. Elmo's Fire? And I was like, aww. <laughs> but, but he always sold it as, oh, it's like The Breakfast Club, but they're in college. But he failed to tell us how depressing that it's movie really was. It's depressing. so dark, yeah. <laughs> That was one I watched for the first time recently because it was kind of under the same, you know, context as you were saying, Joe, like, should I love this movie? Is this mm-hmm. a classic I need to see? But yeah, right. it is dark for sure. Yeah. Well, and, and my family <laughs> did grow up watching The Breakfast Club a lot because even though it's rated R, it was on TV and it's only rated R for language. And so right. they'd always bleep it out. So we always watched The Breakfast Club. So when I finally saw Santa Mo's Fire, I was like, oof, Jesus. Anyway. So- <laughs> <laughs> this is like if The Breakfast Club got dark and their lives went to shit. I mean, it is realistic, though, right? Like the high optimism of and pop and of high school, coupled with oh, like sure. the oh god life in college. <laughs> yes, <laughs> indeed, indeed. We're actually going to talk more about that kind of principle next week, ironically. <laughs> oh yes, we will. Um, but anyway, so I, I nevertheless, it was not a movie I was allowed to watch, and I remember uh, this is a tiny anecdote, but I was in sixth grade, and I went to our our library in the school, mm-hmm. and I found a book called Lost Boys, and I was like, oh my god, like I can't because I had just read, I know you last summer because I couldn't see the movie so I was like oh my god I was going through this whole phase of let me just read the books these movies are based on and since I can't watch the movies and I remember (laughs) grabbing it and I was going to check it out and my teacher looked at it because she heard me talking oh my god it's the vampire movie it's the book though and she looked at it and she looked very perplexed and then she handed it back to me and she's like oh you sweet baby angel this is clearly (laughs) a spinoff of peter pan so lost boys is written by orson scott card oh shit okay and it's the guy that did the enders game books and of course a bunch of other shit but he's also a profound mormon and yeah this book is about a mormon family that moves to a town in 1983 and there are boys that go missing and so but here's the thing I read this entire fucking book waiting for vampires to show up. Oh, no. <laughs> I was about to say, because there is a novelization, I think, for this no. movie. But uh, this is definitely not it. <laughs> it, it. I basically read the entire, the wrong Lost Boys. Because this is just Lost Boys, not the Lost Boys. Oh, and, I love it. It's so And it's funny. also kind of Mormon propaganda. because Oh, it's 100% wow. because he is a piece of shit. <laughs> so... But it is a horror novel because, I mean, and like you know, Orson Scott Card claimed that The Sixth Sense ripped this book off because the whole thing is that like one of the kids, like, like he gets killed, but he, like, whatever, it's a whole thing. He's dead the whole time. But <laughs> I'm this fucking like 12 year old kid reading what I think is the book version of the Lost Boys vampire movie. And it's this Mormon propaganda book. <laughs> <laughs> and then you hated the movie as a result. Well, where's my Mormon propaganda? I keep so waiting for it. Funny. I don't see this movie until probably seven years later. I'm 19 <laughs> years old. I'm I'm going to college, and I, I went to Walmart. And I bought like a bunch of like cheap DVDs, and Lost Boys was one of them because like, all right, I've never seen the Lost Boys. Let me finally watch <laughs> this thing. And yeah, I I, I kind of had a similar experience to Joe, where I was like, oh, I I did think it was kind of boring. I didn't really see the appeal, and I was kind of like, oh, like, whatever. And I have not watched it since, until this week. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Because that's what happens, right? When you're young, and people tell you, oh, it's a classic, you have to watch it, you have these heightened expectations. If the film doesn't meet them, 
then what do you do? You're not going to say, oh, well, I'll wait a year and I'll give it another try. You're going to say, okay, well, that didn't work for me. Bye. I'm going to watch a million other things that I haven't watched yet. Totally. And then you start a podcast that makes you rewatch things (laughs) and you realize, oh, I'm an asshole. I will say... I, I did enjoy this movie a not a, I'm not gonna say a lot more, but I, I did enjoy this more. Um, I had fun with this movie. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed this movie. I still don't connect with it. I still don't really understand why this took off so much. But maybe we'll discuss that <laughs> as we go through the production because yeah, I'm just kind of like, oh yeah, it's fine. It's kind of mm-hmm. fun. I really do love the last twenty minutes, like that go full Home Alone. Yeah, but I, I do have a lot of issues with. Not a lot, but I have issues with, like, just the bulk of, well, Michael and Star. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, the snooze factor? Yes. A lot of it goes down to where this movie was a couple of firsts for me. So, Mm. you know, it was, I think it was the first vampire movie I ever saw. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was. And so my idea of a vampire movie was, this. oh, vampires are fucking hot and they're great. And this (laughs) is so much fun you know this lifestyle and uh (laughs) yeah and and plus it was also i was attracted to like the entire cast so you know it was a you know the sexual awakening at the same time i had crushes on all of them and the music i really loved the music and i remember cry little sister is still Mm -hmm. such a great song and then there's this weird like i was introduced to echo and the Bunnymen because of this movie and they cover jim morrison or the doors is people are strange and i actually did like a improv uh tap dance to that song when i was in like oh my god what well i loved the doors i i they're one of the bands that i grew up on when i was little because like my dad was a dj and like i was introduced to oldies and like classic rock through him and then my older brother like classic rock and also uh metal and so this was just all up my alley and so I remember seeing People Are Strange is one of my, was one of my favorite Doors songs when I was a little kid. It's definitely not now, but like when I was a little kid. And so I did like an impromptu little tap dance to it when I was in second grade. And everyone was like, who the fuck is this? Like, what are you playing, you know? But but it was because of that movie. And it's a really weird cover of it. I don't know, Mm -hmm. maybe they couldn't get the rights to it. But I mean, I think the aesthetic, the cast... The introduction to vampire lore and the music just were all big factors for me from a young age. When you and you are right though. I mean, like, I mean, there there were other vampire movies that sexified vampires, but this is the first one that really took off popularity. I mean, like, I'm thinking back to Tony Scott's um, The Hunger, The Hunger, yes, which mm. absolutely sexifies vampires. I mean, it's David fucking Bowie, but mm-hmm. it was a flop. Well, and I think that this is young vampires too, yes. right? right? Like we were used to seeing vampires as like a Bram Stoker kind of thing, right? They're buttoned up, they're Victorian, they're British, they're very proper, but also sexy. Whereas this is, hey kids, you can be sexy hot and also live forever and party all night. And you can look like this. Don't you want that? And they didn't hide it. like Right? Yeah, they flaunt it. They flaunt it. And the interview with the vampire was another one from mm-hmm. a young age that I really liked. And also, very attractive cast, obviously. But it just felt like such a different time period. There is something about having a vampire movie and vampires in your uh, time period that felt like mm-hmm. you were a part of that world and a part of that no uh, <laughs> it, it's, not, it's not Dracula in a castle in the 30s it's not right. the hammer horror Dracula that's set in the 1800s you know mm-hmm. right it's more modern day and I think that was a big appeal in, to its success and uh, like intrigue for me 
for sure. It's so funny that you even say that though, because like you're like, oh yeah, I wanted to be the vampires in the Lost Boys, whereas my '90s ass was like, I want to be have powers like Matilda. Oh, oh I love God. that. <laughs> I would love that too. Can we just have both? That'd be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just imagining a crossover where, like, David has to babysit Matilda. Or Lottie, the youngest vampire, just starts, like, uh, dating Matilda. Oh, yeah. Maybe mm-hmm. a little chaste romance, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> but that, that is a good segue, though, into, like, yeah, let, let's go into how this film came to be and, like, what, what set this film off to be kind of a... I'll say cultural phenomenon, because it seems like it was kind of like that. But we've got first-time screenwriter James Jeremias, and he's working on it as a grip. Oh, actually, I'm sorry, I should preface this. Um, So a lot of this information is pulled from an article that was written for Empire around the time Joel Schumacher died a few years ago. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, last year. Uh, And it's called The Lost Boys, Joel Schumacher on making the coolest vampire movie of all time. So I've pulled this from that because there's a lot of really good information. Mm Mm-hmm. So yes, we've got first-time screenwriter James Jeremias um, working on a uh, as a grip on Studio Lots when he had he just had an idea for the Lost Boys. He had read Marissa Interview with the Vampire, and he was like, "Oh yeah, like the the, the character of Claudia, it's two hundred year old vampire in the body of a twelve year old girl," and he was like, "What if I could cross over Peter Pan with this story?" And that's exactly what he did. So he writes a screenplay in the summer of 1984 with his childhood friend Jan Fisher. And their agent sends out the script and they sold it in January of 85 to a company called Producer Sales Organization, henceforth to be referred to as PSO. They had a deal with Warner Brothers and they bought the script for $400,000, which at the time was a very significant. Oh, I, I mean, was going to say, that is a lot of money. <laughs> Holy. <laughs> I think, so the issue is here, PSO goes bankrupt and Warner Brothers hires Richard Donner, um, director of Superman and also director of The Goonies, to ding, direct ding, it. Ding, ding, <laughs> ding. Yes. Donner liked it, but he wanted the Peter Pan references jettisoned and he wanted to make the boys older. So he didn't want them to be teenagers, he wanted them to be fucking. Like, he wanted them to be, like, in their early 20s, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, driving, doing drugs, having sex. Yes. Um, and honestly, I in, in an age of today, you know, where it's like, oh, we're doing like gritty reboots of like, you know, silly comic books and whatever. Like, the fact that this was like an idea for this film, I'm like, I don't want that version of this movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, this movie succeeds because it is fun. Like, can you imagine a morose version of this? Oh, wait, it's called The Covenant. Never mind. <laughs> And PG-13. Oh, my God. Um, so Donner wanted them to write a third draft with him, but by that point, the Jeremiah and Fisher were unavailable. Um, they were writing a screenplay for Paramount, but I couldn't figure out what this was because they haven't really done anything since no. this movie, which is kind of upsetting. So Donner instead hires Jeffrey Bohm, who had written David Cronenberg's The Dead Zone. Unfortunately, Donner was then offered re- Lethal Weapon to direct, so he was like, ah, oh, fuck yeah, I'm gonna go direct that. <laughs> and he stays on this film as executive producer, which, again, the fact that we're doing this a week after Clue, and we're talking about how John Landis was supposed to direct Clue, got something else, and then stayed on as executive producer, like, this is just our track here. Mm-hmm. I think it happens more often than we realize Mm -hmm. like we often think oh okay you know a director and a writer shepherd this film through the whole production cycle and it's like nah man people come and go on movies all the time yeah Mm -hmm. so donner's wife who was producer lauren schuler she had actually just produced saint amos fire take a drink every time we say saint amos fire (laughs) and (laughs) 
he's he's like, oh my god, like get Joel Schumacher, he'll be perfect. So Joel Schumacher goes to a lunch meeting with Warner Brothers executive Mark Canton, and Schumacher <laughs> was borderline offended <laughs> that he was off being offered this kid's vampire movie. Can we also say that in this article, Schumacher admits that he was drunk on Bloody Marys, and he's like, oh, excuse me, it's the drinking, and I'm just like. <laughs> So relatable, Joel Schumacher. So relatable. <laughs> Bitchy gay. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, so Canton is like, dude, fuck off. You should be l- you're even you're lucky that we're even offering this movie to you. So he took it. <laughs> <laughs> he reads the draft and he's like, Oh yeah, it was very much Goonies Go Vampire. Which I mean, w- right. when was Goonies? 85, 86? Something uh, like that, yeah. yeah. But it was so much more innocent. That's the thing. Like But I feel like you can see the genesis of that still, right? Like, that's what the younger brother, the Corey Haim character is, right? Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Marissa, do you like the Goonies? I mean, I do. (laughs) The pause, the breath. (laughs) I know, I know. I mean, probably not as much as you would expect me to, but Mm -hmm. I like it okay. It's definitely not one of my favorites, but, you know, it's good. I like it. I didn't connect with it a whole (laughs) bunch, but... Yeah, God, Marissa, you sound like me talking about this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, do you love the Goonies? How do you? I do love the Goonies. (laughs) Wait, are you serious? You do? I do. I love the Goonies. I think it's (laughs) a fantastic movie. Oh my God, that's so that's funny. Um, I've actually so I have seen half of the Goonies, and I do not like the half because I'm a firm believer: if you have not finished a movie, you cannot say you don't like the movie because you have not seen the movie. Right? Yeah. Okay. So that being said. I do not like the half of the Goonies that I have seen. <laughs> was it the first half or the second? No, yeah, it was the first half. It was at a high school party. I, okay. I, I, again, I, I'm saying at a high school party. It was a theater party. Like, we weren't fucking drinking and doing drugs. <laughs> okay, I was about to say you watched a movie at a party in high school. <laughs> well, let me set the scene. It was in a hotel that had sunk in an earthquake, and we were drinking blood and eating Chinese and... But, oh, but no, because I, I feel like the Goonies and the Lost Boys, those are those two like 80s, like group of boys band together type movies. That I just, I, yeah, for some reason, I just never connected with them. And I always chalked it up to like, oh, it's because it's a bunch of straight boys banding together and I feel left out of that circle. <laughs> so maybe I'm like harboring a grudge against them. But ah, uh, yes, the Lost Boys, noted straight boys hanging out together, maybe. <laughs> Maybe that's what it was, too, though. I don't know. I mean, I like the adventure aspect of it. And I would suggest mm-hmm. watching the second half one day because it is pretty fun. Like, the the setup and the traps. It's very Indiana Jones, yeah, you know, adventure. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I would suggest watching it. All the booby traps and stuff. And yeah. It's fun. It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'll take your word for it. I mean, you know what, Marissa? <laughs> I'll watch it with you. You will watch. The, we'll do We'll do a double feature of The Goonies and I think Demolition Man is the other movie <gasps> yes! that I'll see. Oh my god, yes! Demolition Man is the best. <laughs> I've been trying to get him on board with Demolition Man. I'm like, Oh my we god, have Trace, you will this. die. Yes. It, is, it is one of my favorite action films it's of all like time. hilarious and it's so fucking great and we have to get taco bell too yes and then- oh, oh my fine. god yes okay they um, did win the franchise wars so you have to <laughs> oh my god okay fuck y'all um so, so schumacher was upset that the script for this was very g-rated um he was gonna turn it down but then he was like oh wait like what if and then started filling in the plot so mm-hmm. he gets the green light and he goes to re- reconfigure the script with mr bone takes the job and, you know, because he, he was like, oh, like, you know, vampires should be sexy because he viewed vampires as a metaphor for oral sex. Because he was like, yeah, you're putting your mouth on someone's body and you're sucking fluid out of it. Like, that's I mean, oral sex. not, not wrong. <laughs> 
I mean, there's been association with like, you know, the AIDS, you know, oh, sure. crisis mm-hmm. in the 80s. There's a lot of like, there's a lot of association, I think, with that and sexual association with that, I think, with vampires. But I have not heard the oral sex one, though. That's interesting. I think yeah. just because it's so much sucking, right? I guess. Yeah. Oh, God, but your lips get tired after a while. <laughs> 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 anyway, so so th- they filmed this, you know, and um, uh, they, they start. They, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, did they really? The, the the movie is filmed and it does come out. No, but the the studio ended up getting cold feet just before shooting. Though they were like, oh, they wanted to hold back. Schumacher says that he, they were concerned the cast were mostly unknowns. They ordered a budget cut of two million dollars, which wow. is a lot of money. But the budget mm-hmm. they had was still eight and a half million dollars. So, like, mm-hmm. I don't know, man. That's so they had ten, and then they lost one fifth of their budget. Oh uh, yeah. Yes, Jeez. but and Joe, I can't remember the movie we discussed where it was like, oh yeah, they cut a budget, so they had to get creative with their with everything. Mm, it was excision. Excision. Okay. So, because this budget, this $2 million that was cut, mostly came out of the art department, which meant production designer Bo Welch, and again, random aside, I only know Bo Welch because, um, so y'all have seen Beetlejuice, right? Mm-hmm. Come on. I know. <laughs> so, I'm like, you're talking to Marissa. Yes. No, I know, I know, I know. Um, but no, so Bo Welch was a production yes. designer on that movie. And I remember uh. this name specifically because in the opening credits for Beetlejuice, um, you know, it plays that great, the theme, the Beetlejuice mm-hmm. theme by Danny Elfman. Mm-hmm. And there's basically a part where it really kicks up and it's like, da, 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 yes. da, da, It's so creepy and good. And that's when Bo Welch's name comes up? Yes. Okay. <laughs> So oh my god, Bo Welch, so bombastic. Yeah, so as a kid, I just associated Bo Welch with this like surge of happiness as the Aww. music in Beetlejuice really kicked up. So when I saw Bo Welch here, I was like, oh, Bo Welch! <laughs> well, he met, um, what is her name, Catherine O'Hara? Mm-hmm. What? Really? He, he met her on the Beetlejuice film, and they're married. Oh, shit. Oh. <laughs> Didn't know is that. It, isn't that precious? I That's love so that. Yeah. And he also worked on Edward Scissorhands, too. So this guy, right. he does, in Batman Returns, I think, also. He's worked with Tim Burton a long time. I'm mm. sure there are listeners that are like, duh, Trace, Bo Welch. He's like a, a world-renowned production designer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's awesome, but I like how you affiliate his name with that. I mean, that score is just phenomenal and so, it's so mm-hmm. ingrained when you hear it. But yeah, I mean, the production design on The Lost Boys is pretty fucking awesome. I that's really, what I th- really like it. Yeah, that's what I think is so funny is you read, oh, we lost $2 million and this is still what we get because mm-hmm. the production design of this film is fantastic. Well, yeah. so they ha- he had to get more creative. They did. He, it says corners were cut ingeniously. A POV shot of a vampire shooting through the clouds ended up being unused B-roll footage Schumacher managed to wrangle from Top Gun. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. But more so, the executives didn't understand what kind of film Schumacher was making. And I think, I think Joe, like, I think we've had this discussion before again, but it, they asked Joel Schumacher, are you making a horror movie or a comedy? And Joel Schumacher <laughs> replies... Yes. I love it. I fucking love it. Because yes, yes. That's interesting that it's like they ask one or the other when there's tons of horror comedies that have already mm-hmm. been successful and made in the past. Like that subgenre horror comedy existed at this time. I wonder if it's like maybe because watching this, I, I mean, there are noticeable stakes involved and people do die. Mm-hmm. Wait, did you mean that with a pun intended? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, but I'll take it. Okay. okay. <laughs> 
but I just wonder if maybe they that maybe the studio hadn't seen like a horror comedy where it was like equal parts horror and comedy. Like maybe they were like, hey, it really needs le- needs to lean into one or the other. Yeah, I feel like it, I don't know. It's interesting because like so much of horror has elements of comedy that people don't always pick up on or mm-hmm. think about. Even hereditary, mm-hmm. there's a couple of moments of comedy uh, just to like relieve that tension. I mean, in this, especially when you watch this film now and you've never seen it, it's encapsulated in the 80s. So a lot of stuff is going to be funny, even when it came out that wouldn't be like their clothes yeah. or the production design or anything. A lot of stuff could be funny, but I think that it's a really good combination of both, but the vampires themselves aren't really funny. It's more like the frog brothers and the grandpa. He provides right. a really great comedy to Even it. Even like Diane Weiss, uh, like tearing out of her fucking date when she gets the call from yes. the sun, right? Mm-hmm. I wanted more Lucy in this. I love Diane Weiss in this movie. I'm like so precious. Well, I I, I thought too. I was like, because uh, Marissa, I was like, I feel like the Fright Night remake with Tony Collette mm. took a lot of narrative cues from this film, at least in mm. regards to the family dynamic and the mother specifically. Right. I could see that. I think Tony Collette's character is a little bit more edgy. But yeah. right. <laughs> Wait, you're saying Lucy in her pastel on pastel <laughs> outfits is not edgy? I mean, I just see her as the friendly mom who takes in Edward Scissorhands too. I mean, she's just one of those people uh, yeah. who smiles at you and she just looks like such a good, wholesome person. And she's so yeah. great for this role of being a mother to these lost boys and these vampires. And she's just, she has this really innocent quality and wholesome nature well, about her that i can't imagine her in like a evil role at all well, she, you know? she has a generous nature a, right. as max says <laughs> yeah i mean but like just yeah i mean it's just so spot on the casting in this film is just really amazing it's really 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 good so moving back to these executives yeah th- th- there was a shame factor about the genre element i think they wanted it to lean more comedy which again when the original script was more g-rated goonies with vampires and, and then it becomes it makes this. sense yeah. yeah, exactly. So Schumacher's like, yeah, there was a shame factor. People in marketing would say, well, it's not really a vampire movie. It's really an alienation movie. It's about the disenfranchised. And Joel Schumacher replies, no, we're absolutely making a teenage vampire movie. We're trying to make the coolest vampire movie ever made. <laughs> I mean, I would argue it is both, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would agree. So yeah, it is shot by cinematographer Michael Chapman, who um, that was a big get for them because he had shot Taxi Driver and Raging Bull, although he would go on later to shoot Kindergarten Cop and Space Jam. Uh, the the old transition between genres, right? <laughs> okay, so fun fact, Kindergarten Cop is oh, I love it. filmed in Astoria and mm-hmm. up in um, Oregon, and that's the same town that Goonies was filmed in. So if you're oh ever in Astoria... Oh my god, it's all connected! Yes. Oh my god. No. <laughs> if you're ever in Astoria, you can literally just like go to the houses of the Goonies, go to Cannon Beach, and then right across the way is the elementary school or the kindergarten for Kindergarten uh, Pop. Love that. <laughs> I love finding those weird connections when we do the production show. <laughs> no. It makes it feel like it's a very small world. <laughs> yeah. So the Goonies, oh, the Goonies, oh my god, the Lost Boys <laughs> opens on July 31st, 1987, and it is opening the same weekend as James Bond, Timothy Dalton star, The Living Daylights. So eh, nobody cares it, about that one. Well, you're right, but it's still opening the number one spot, whereas the Goonies, uh, god damn it, the Lost Boys <laughs> opens <laughs> number 
two spot. Um, the Lost Boys opens the number two spot with six point, uh, sorry, with five point two million dollars behind The Living Daylights, which I think earned like eleven million dollars. It goes on to gross thirty two point two million again against this eight and a half million dollar budget. So it makes four times its money back. That is legs too. Yeah, from five million to thirty two million, absolutely. <laughs> awesome. So uh, critical reception is mostly positive. We've got a 76% on Rotten Tomatoes with a 6.4 out of 10 average. Letterboxd, we've got a 7.4 out of 10. And CinemaScore audiences, way back in 1987, gave this an A-. Fuck yeah. Honestly surprised. Great. Really? Why are you surprised by that? I just think this is a teen film. It's about vampires, and I mean, sure, it's it's absolutely everything that Marissa has said. It's sexy, it's edgy, it's very of the time, and so on, but I guess, I don't know, th- this seems like a teen film, and I would have thought that critics would ravage it. Hmm. I mean, the way that it was shot, I think, you know, it is all practical. The practical effects still yeah. hold up. The way that they use the camera in a lot of ways is really mm. great and leaves a lot to the eyes. Like the way that they swoop in and fly, even the opening mm-hmm. shot, how they fly over the city. I think like from a technical standpoint. Oh, it's very well done. It's really yeah. well done. So I can see that, but it's really silly and goofy at the same time. It has that underlayer of silly and goofiness on top of that sex appeal. So more. It, but it's not overtly gory, right? I think the gory is, is and it's it's really quick. It's that beach attack, and you see Kiefer Sutherland bite the guy's head, right? Yeah, and then and then there's like a split second shot, like a couple seconds later, of him like peeling his scalp back, but you can barely see it unless you pause the yeah, movie. Yeah, it's really yeah. not that gory. I mean. That's another fun thing is there's so many, this sounds weird to say, but there's so many fun kill scenes in it. The last <laughs> act is great and it's oh, not yeah. your typical well, vampire lore. Like they step outside of what you think would kill a vampire and how vampires look and what they do. I mean, it's just so subversive in so many ways. I think mm-hmm. people like were interested by it, you know? And let's right. not forget Curious. this is coming two years after another very well-reviewed, but not quite as box office smash vampire movie, Fright Night. Uh, yeah. Huh. AKA my preferred 80s vampire text. <laughs> yeah, that was one that I saw um, when I was a lot older, actually. I remember the uh, the VHS cover freaked me out too much. I was scared to watch it. Oh, it's so good. I grew up with that one, like, because it was on AMC all <laughs> the time when I was growing up. So, mm-hmm. but I mean, yeah, like, you know, the 80s are bookended with three, like, with, like, again, like, from beginning, middle, end, we've got The Hunger, Fright Night, and The Lost Boys, like, as yeah. you're tracking vampires through the 80s. Oh, my God. And sexy fucking vampires all the way through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, it's great. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that's it, Joe. So why don't we dive into the plot of this movie? Alright, so Marissa has already cued us to the song of choice. Get used to it, folks. We will hear oh. it a lot throughout this movie. <laughs> I like the song. It just, Yeah, they play it mm-hmm. a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that sex I, scene. <laughs> oh, like, it, were we paying per use? Or so was it like, funny. we spent too much money, we gotta get our money's worth now? <laughs> I have thoughts about that sex scene, too. There was Ugh. a uh, there was an interview with Kiefer Sutherland, and he was at a panel at some horror convention, was saying every time he walked into, he didn't say strip club, he said, like, dance bar. And everyone was like, what the fuck? That's <laughs> so Canadian of him. Yeah, he goes, every time I walked into a dance bar, people would know who I was, and they immediately would play that song, and he just couldn't escape it for years. Wow. <laughs> so funny. But it's so good. It's it's pretty hot. It's a hot no, tune. I, 
when I heard, I was, oh, this is kind of cool. I like this. But mm-hmm. then it, I heard it, you know, 20 more times throughout the course of the 97-minute movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so we are talking about Cry Little Sister by Gerard <laughs> McMahon. Uh, and this is playing as we get this aerial shot. It's like a POV over the water down into an amusement park. And this is where we're immediately introduced to our antagonist, David, played by Kiefer Sutherland. And his band of Lost Boy Punks. So we have Paul, who is played by Brooke Carter, Marco, who is played by Alex Winter, and Dwayne, who is played by Billy Worth. I cannot tell you which one is which, except for how they die. It's like, that's the only way I can distinguish them. Dwayne is my boy. Dwayne did it for me. Because I only know Alex Winter from Bill and Ted, even though I've never seen Bill and Ted, but I'm like, oh, he's the blonde vampire that looks like Bill or Ted, whichever one he is. That (laughs) might have been his first movie. I think it was because he was fresh out of acting school and they were all really young, like late Mm -hmm. late 19, Mm -hmm. uh, 19, early 20s. But I know... Dwayne, he's a Native American model who's been in a couple other different movies or shows down the road. But man, him and the guy who played Michael were my two huge crushes. Like Jason Patrick. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Just yes. I, I don't. So uh, the, I think the only thing I actively recognize Jason Patrick from, and it's not even a big thing, is sc- Speed, Speed 2. Speed 2. Speed 2. Mm-hmm. And I haven't seen that movie since I was eight years old and saw it in the theater, but that's, it's I just so know that bad. that's, that's Jason Patrick is Speed 2. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, you would, he didn't really have like a booming career after that. No, like it's it's this movie that yeah. makes him, and then, yeah, Speed 2, which kind of breaks him. And he did not want to be in this movie initially because he was actively like, I don't want to have to wear prosthetics. And Joel Schumacher promised him he would not have to wear prosthetics. But when the ending changed, she had to. <laughs> that's such like, a well. lame thing. I don't know. Like, I don't know. I think that's kind of lame. Yeah, it's kind of like, come on, pretty boy, suck it up. And the prosthetics weren't even <laughs> that extensive. It was like a forehead piece really painful contact lenses and some mm. fangs. You're not talking about an eight hour sitting in the chair makeup job like, you know, the Grand High Witch or oh my God, I was like, no, yes. Jeff Goldblum from The Fly is like, yeah. hey y'all, like <laughs> Yeah. I mean seriously. Seriously. It'd be like, suck it up. Come on. That's nothing. That's nothing. But he is gorgeous. He is a gorgeous man. And he, he actually, is, yeah. he reminds me a lot of Jim Morrison. And they have that oh, huge yeah. poster of him in their hideout. And mm-hmm. I don't know if that intention was, or if that similarly was like intentional, but um, this whole life of excess and, you know, partying and drinking and drugs and sex and that whole Dionysus kind of mentality with Jim Morrison in the doors with, you know, Michael looking like him. It might have been intentional. I don't know. But he looked a lot Uh, like Jim Morrison in that. I can completely buy it. And also it then kind of gives you this idea that, oh, well, if we obviously read David as a queer figure, he's got Mm -hmm. this rock idol literally hanging in his hideout and then he sees a living boy version mm, of it mm-hmm. it's like cool i'm gonna bite that mm-hmm. and i well and i mean we'll get to it later but he was told to buy that by an older 
gay man. I mean vampire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, Max. <laughs> uh, I mean, let me just say, um, the first time I saw this, I actually was surprised that the grandpa from Gilmore Girls was the main villain of this movie. <laughs> oh, that's he? who he is. I okay. have never seen the Gilmore Girls. That's funny. Oh, Marissa, that seems like a very you show. Really? Hmm. Oh, no, Marissa, it's, I, I bet you would like it. It's really good. But um, uh, have y'all not seen Richie Rich? Oh, I have. Yeah, yeah. He's the dad in no. Richie Rich. Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay, so we haven't seen all of the Goonies. We haven't seen Bill and Ted, <laughs> but we've seen fucking Richie Rich. I mean, I've seen Bill and Ted. Who, Trace, you haven't seen Bill and Ted? Never seen Bill and Ted, no. <gasps> Ooh, that's oh, Keanu. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I, 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 I've never been interested in like the, the stoner surfer humor vibe, which is also why I don't love mm. Sean Penn. And, um, oh, my God, what's uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High? Um, uh, okay. Mm-hmm. So it, not my cup of tea. But I would watch Bill and Ted because I do want to watch the new one since Samara Weaving's in it. I, get, I see what you mean. And that's another one that's just so of the times. Yes. You know? I mean, despite the fact that the first Bill and Ted came out in 89, I thought those were like mid-80s movies. It's 89 and 91. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does feel steeped in 80s culture. Maybe that's why. For yeah. sure. But anyway, yes. Edward anyway. Herman, a grandpa from Gilmore Girls. Funny. There we go. <laughs> okay, so we're still in the opening scene of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> so we we no don't apologize this is this is how we roll here at Horror Queers. <laughs> 150 episodes of fucking tangents all mm-hmm. the time <laughs> let us talk about Ridgey rich for five minutes mm-hmm. cool we're back all right so yeah uh i mean this whole opening scene is very much setting the stage this is how vampires work but also i love how joel schumacher is using the camera with these pov shots and mm-hmm. we're showing but also not showing and it feels like a tease and i kind of like it well and it, i i got two things from this so one was oh it's kind of like jaws i mean obviously they, they could it was a budget constraint that's why mm-hmm. they couldn't really show them flying right. but it's very jawsy and then it's like oh yeah like they let let's do this but i also feel like and i don't know maybe i'm just reaching here but i feel like hocus pocus took some t- some pointers from this movie when it comes to the because they yes that movie yeah. opens with like pov shots of the witches flying Well, and it's also used in the movie, the original The Witches. I forget what year Mm. that came out, but... Mm. That's 90, that's 90. Yeah, so I mean... I think it's a budget cut, but it also works really well because it yes. kind it's kind of menacing. It's menacing. It's a way to sort of, uh, I think, see the film or put the viewer in the perspective of the antagonist right from the start without mm-hmm. you completely knowing that or under or realizing it. So you're not immediately like turned off or scared it kind of draws you in and allures you to that side too yeah i appreciate this too because so much of this film is working within a practical range like Mm -hmm. i'm sure that there's some maybe early minor cgi kind of fx work but for the most part this is a practical film and all i can think about is how shitty it would have looked for them to try to replicate flying oh yeah terrible whereas instead it totally holds up even after all these years as a result. I don't even, uh, as hot as those guys are, I don't think they'd look as hot if they were like flying, if I saw them flying. I don't know why. Like, (laughs) I like their hair just blowing when they're, you know, just on the ground and you can access Mm -hmm. them, access them. I don't know. Sex them? Sorry, what? Both. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes to all. We're (laughs) we're Joel Schumachering our way through this episode. It's just yes, yes to everything. (laughs) 
<laughs> All right. So we're introduced to our protagonist. We have single mother Lucy Emerson, played by Diane Weist. We have her teenage son, Michael, played by Jason Patrick, and her preteen son, Sam, who's played by Corey Haim. So uh, for those keeping track at home, that's two Canadians, because Corey Haim <laughs> and Kiefer Sutherland. Love it. Canada rocks. Keep on um, going. I, I will say that, and what... I know that she's like an ex-hippie or whatever, but I actually, the thing that stood out to me the most watching this movie this time was kind of how progressive it was in its mm-hmm. portrayal of a divorced woman, mm-hmm. a, a, divorce, oh, yeah. a single mother. Mm-hmm. There we go. Yeah. I mean, she is a divorced woman for sure. Yeah. I, I, I mean, like I wanted to make sure that the, the mother part was a divorced mother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, but I, I like how non-condescending the film is towards her. And it's like, I don't know. I, I, I honestly found it very refreshing and endeared me towards her so much, which is why I just, and also I think because of the fact that Diane Weiss had just won an Oscar before accepting this movie. So I'm right. also like endeared to her as an actress for being like, yeah, I'll go do this horror comedy after winning an Oscar. That's awesome. She avoids that Oscar curse. She's like, yeah, I'm going to win the Oscar and then I'm going to make a super successful vampire film. (laughs) Yeah. And she she is honestly delightful in this. It's Mm -hmm. difficult after the fact because we know Diane Weiss. We love Diane Weiss. And you do want more from her. Like her arc is basically I move my kids to town. I live with my dad. He's a really like off the grid kind of hippie. Yeah. And then her story arc is basically just, I need to get a job and then I meet the wrong man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're like, oh, it's a bad sitcom for you. Ugh, it's so sad. Like, of course she, you know, meets the worst dude uh, that she possibly could, you know. <laughs> but you know what? She ends this movie smiling, so it's fine. Um, but I, I, I do wish she had more to do outside of just like, or I wish she found out sooner. Like, I mean, again, mm-hmm. we'll talk about it in the climax, but right. I do want to pull a quote from this article in The Atlantic, and it's um, The Lost Boys' Subtly Radical Vision of Family by Bri- Brandon Tinsley. Mm-hmm. And he, he contextualizes the film within what was going on in the 80s at the time. And he says, The Lost Boys was released amid a new wave of American conservatism that had begun gaining momentum near the end of the 70s. A particular note was the evangelical preacher Jerry Falwell's organization, The Moral Majority, which marshaled yeah. white-wing, right-wing Christians as a political force for the first time against abortion, homosexuality, and other supposed social ills. Get stuffed. The group sought to protect American family values, a term now primarily associated with the Christian right, Mm -hmm. after what it saw as the rise of a destructive social liberalism in the previous decade. The moral majority threw its full weight behind Ronald Reagan's 1980 presidential campaign, with some observers crediting the group with the whim. So, of course, this film is something that is at odds with the prevailing socio-political narratives of the Reagan era. Yeah. Yeah. Cuz this is not a conservative film in either it's like subject matter but also its politics. Mm-hmm. And you know, despite my my penchant for following rules, I, I respect that about this film. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's so funny that Schumacher wasn't initially attracted to this and then he turns it into something that really does reflect a kind of queer sensibility, right? Like it's about women taking ownership of their own lives. Uh, you know, we may not like the dude that she ends up going out to date, but she moves to a new town. She meets a dude on the boardwalk and she's going to go out and live her life. And then meanwhile, we've also got queer vampires on the side well i mean yeah it's queer in both senses of the word it's queer in like how we are queer joe but it's also queer in like a like it's strange because it's again going against the norms Mm -hmm. right yeah and also really if you only take one lesson away from this movie it's don't date men that you meet on the boardwalk 
Well, he owns the video rental store. <laughs> I actually saw somebody post that it was the best disguise that he could have ever done because he actually has access to everyone's addresses and credit card information. So it would immediately gain him access to like, okay, who do I want to go after and so on. And it's oh, I like more that. fun than working at like a bank or something. Right? <laughs> and that <laughs> video I... store is freaking cool. Like oh, I it's love sick. Yes. It's so cool. I love the interior design of it. Mm-hmm. Well, and the funny thing is, is we wouldn't think he's a villain because he's almost living this counterculture life, right? Mm-hmm. He's an old, old, <laughs> he's a middle-aged straight white dude who's running a video store on the boardwalk. Mm-hmm. Like, he should be cool and hip. Yeah. And I think that's part of his disguise. That's why he works as a villain. I mean, well, yeah. yes, but I, I also, and I mean, again, like, it's a 97-minute movie. Like, uh, this movie does move pretty briskly, so, I mean, I, what are they going to do with Because this movie isn't interested in exploring him as a character or a villain, mm-hmm. because as soon as he is revealed, he is killed within, I'm pretty sure, two minutes of screen <laughs> time. <laughs> it's but, quick, like, yeah. I, yeah, it does, like, I mean, we know why he wants Lucy to be a father for his boys, but why did he want those boys to begin with? It's all just about her, sadly. Oh, you mean, like, David and his group? Yeah. Like, like, why did he make uh, these teenage punk vampires? Right. Because, I mean, it's kind of like you have to have a coven, right? Like, I mean, if you're going to live forever, like, you need someone to do the dirty work. I think it's more of, like, a, a muscle thing or uh, having, okay. like, henchmen type thing, you know? Well, it's also, he's the one that wants this nuclear family. So if we're saying, okay, cool, this movie mm. is going against that ideal of the 80s, it's the villain of the film, the vampire, mm-hmm. that wants this nuclear family mm. to, <laughs> to be conservative. <laughs> mm, yeah. And honestly, I mean, not to pull back too far from mm. where we're at in the plot, but really, that's one of the things that, I struggle with about this film is that it seems very pro queer, but then it's also very conservative in the way that it ends, but it's also got some kind of sly subversions. Like it's both pro queer and also very pro kind of conservative family values in some other ways. So Mm -hmm. it's trying to manage too many things. Well, it's also because we have this queer director in 1987. So like the peak of the AIDS crisis has passed, but it's still happening. So Mm -hmm. it's a queer director working within the restraints of the studio system in conservative America. Mm -hmm. And so I I get what you're saying, Joe, but I also I'm also I'm, I'm also like, well, I get why. Mm-hmm. there may be a muddled message there mm-hmm. well and and it's actually very similar like i'm complaining about it but it's very similar to the conversation that we had with peaches christ when we talked about fright night because it's the exact same thing right like sexy fun times equals queer vampire but then also at the end of the film we've got to say oh no um heterosexual for the win yeah yeah well it's also weird with like star and her whole dynamic of being a caretaker for a child child. so she's forced into a mother role and they don't Mm -hmm. really say like is this your brother is this your son is this your who what is this and who is laddie yeah why are you even around like the only the only answer we get to laddie is that they're his face is on the milk carton yeah, right. I think it's just literally a lost boy, and she mm-hmm. was like, oh, I know you're a vampire, and what's going to happen to you? And I know mm-hmm. these dudes, so I'm going to take care of you, which she's yeah. kind of forced into a motherly role, which sucks. 
<laughs> Dear Lord, you don't have to adopt this boy as a result. You know what I mean? She just is running with these rough dudes and has this little kid around. I'm like, Star, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. But let's not pretend that Star is a character. Because oh, God, Star, no. and, and th- that is actually my biggest issue with this movie. I love Jamie Gertz. And Absolutely. I, I'm the idiot that totally watched all four seasons of her sitcom on CBS with Mark Addy called Still Standing in the early 2000s. Oh, no. um, I've never even heard of that. Oh, so it was... for those keeping track at home, no to the Goonies and no to Bill and Ted, but yes to four seasons of this Jamie Gertz show. Uh, it was critically reviled, and but for some reason, like I mean, it's, it lasted for four seasons. I loved it, but anyway, of course, I love yeah. I love Jamie Gertz, and also if you've never seen her Gilda Radner TV movie, she's amazing as Gilda Radner. Oh. But like. Star I is gotta n- go. We got cows. <laughs> Star is nothing in this movie. Yeah. She, oh yeah, I'm sorry. She's in Twister. But yeah, she's, I actually do want more of her. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah, she, she is a prop. She really, she's like, a. she's prey and a prop. That's really it. Well, that's what I love. It's like, if, if you want to lean into the queer reading of this, I just love the fact that we've got... Uh, a queer vampire saying, I'm just going to use this hot chick as a honeypot so that I can score my Jim Morrison wannabe <laughs> boyfriend. <laughs> oh, 100%. Yeah. David does not give a shit about Star. Yeah. No, of course not. I know. it's uh, There's a lot of toxic treatment. Hidden toxic treatment towards women in this. They're not, it's not like so much mm-hmm. abusive, but it's just their place that they're in. You know what I yes. mean? And like what they're mm-hmm. used for, what their roles are supposed to be. Yeah. And uh, it's odd. Rewatching that as an adult, I mean, I never really identified with Star. If anything, when I was younger, I was jealous of her. But as an adult, I'm like not jealous of her at all because that kind of right. sucks. Like you just don't, nothing. Well, what are you but doing? There's nothing to identify with, though, because there's no character traits to her. Right. I, 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 except for what y'all have already said. Well, this is such a masculine movie, which is, mm-hmm. you know, in a way ironic, right, Marissa? Because you're saying, oh, I was so sexually attracted to all of these men. And you're like, yeah. Because there's nothing else in this movie. It's just like machismo, sexual charisma. And if that doesn't appeal to you, then it's like, sorry, I got nothing for you. Yeah, I mean, I... With... And Star's role, I mean, there's also very little dialogue there that Mm -hmm. she talks about, too. It's interesting because I think Schumacher wanted to go on and make a sequel called The Lost Girls and have a female cast. And I wonder if he envisioned something down the road for Star, and maybe that's why she didn't really have such a strong presence in this film, but that could Mm. be a stretch. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, all we can do is speculate at this point. Yeah. He did want Drew Barrymore in that sequel, though. Oh, I would have... That would have been fun. He wanted a blonde for Star. Oh, yeah. The only reason Jamie Gertz got hired is because Jason Patrick um, was in Solar Baby. Had for her. Yeah, yeah, he, he he went to bat for her. Huh. I mean, I think it works. The way that he was describing, I think, yeah, like he wanted a, a blonde pixie who like hung out by the beach. I like the okay. wild haired bohemian type star, you know? I do too, actually. Yeah, I mean, I, I think she looks good in this movie. Yeah. Oh I just, God, you yes. know, I wish she had anything to do. Right. Yes. It's just not a movie about her. Yeah, okay. like lure mm-hmm. boys in and babysit Lottie. That's... Well, mm-hmm. that's- I mean, again, again, not a huge issue because to me, this is just a kind of a fun vampire movie. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of players here. Like, I mean, I would even argue that Edgar and Frog. I'm kind of like, wait, who are these boys? Where are their parents? Like, what? What is <laughs> oh, their they have so, no parents? <laughs> why do they care about vampires so much? Like, they, I mean, again, like they, these aren't really important questions. But I'm just like, again, there's so many different things here that the movie is juggling mostly well, but it's often at the expense of any kind of like characterization. I think. Mm. A, I mean, I. 
they it goes back into this theme of being a lost boy. It's probably just yeah. them. Like they work at the store, they right. go out, they have fun. Their home life probably isn't great, like everybody else's, and they find mm-hmm. refuge in other things like comics and slaying vampires. And someone has to do it because they're everywhere. And I don't know. I mean, I kind of like actually that there's not a whole bunch of backstory with these characters. There, we don't see glimpses into the vampire's backstory or Max mm-hmm. or right. Star or um, even the mom, you know, or the brothers. And yet it works like normally that would piss me off. But no, I think it works here. Right. But I mean, like, have Edgar and Frog faced a vampire before or are they just like, hey, kids, is Max the first vampire in this? I mean, again. I get what you're saying, right? Like, do we want to have flashbacks or exposition explaining these things? Honestly, no, this movie doesn't need those things. But I'm just kind of <laughs> like, but like, why are they so into vampires? Have they seen them before? <laughs> well, you know, there are sequels to yeah, these, yeah. This, to this film, but I have never seen them. So I wonder if they explore that in the other ones. But once I started learning there were sequels, I was like, I'm I'm not, I'm not engaging. <laughs> I'm out. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, I just... I, I, I have not heard they are good movies. No, they're not good. <laughs> no, I haven't heard anything great about them. And uh, I kind of just wanted, it sounds so pretentious, but I, I wanted my world of Lost Boys to stay what it is and yeah, not okay. change. And uh, so maybe they explore that, you know, in the sequels, but I wouldn't know. Well, listeners, if you've seen the other two films, let us know. I feel like we kind of already have a sense, but... (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so this is all fascinating, but can we please talk about the sweaty saxophone performance? Because (laughs) I didn't know that Tim Capello doing I Still Believe on this beach stage, (laughs) I didn't realize this was a fucking phenomenon and yet i see this motherfucker (laughs) gift all the time yeah i i don't i don't know why um honestly it's one of those things where i feel so out of the loop i i I too have seen this gift everywhere and i'm just like okay (laughs) i mean i get it he he is jacked he is (laughs) glistening he is wearing tight pants and a david bowie cod piece like the ponytail is uh i mean this is why it's not resonating for trace because he's looking at the ponytail and just immediately (laughs) disconnecting yeah i mean it's not resonating for me either that's probably the um i'm not a that's probably the character that i'm least attracted to in the film (laughs) i think it's supposed to i think people think he's funny though i I think it's it's, it's so ridiculous yeah it's it's very performative and just so over the top and and seeing the reaction in the crowd the crowd is so into it and i are eating it up what kind of i have never been to a show anything remotely like that where someone could i mean i even seeing guar live it's like See, and Trace can't respond to that because we've we've tried to educate him on what Guar is, and he still doesn't get it. We're gonna watch Empire Records one day. We talk about right. Uh, Joe, yeah. Joe's already told me. Yeah. I, I've had three people in this podcast tell me to go watch Empire Records. I will watch Empire <laughs> Records one day. This is so fucking good. <laughs> oh, that whole concert and that scene is so so over the top and so funny. I I'm not mm-hmm. familiar with his music or him like as a performer in general, but I mean that's the thing that surprised me is that he is absurd. a legit legitimate saxophonist this is like he's yeah. playing himself yeah that's that's him. that's his vibe the first time i saw this i actually thought that he was going to be a vampire later <laughs> on because he, <laughs> he has the same aesthetic it's like wow punk if- rock mixed with a wwe kind of look oh yes definitely wwe kind oh my gosh 
I can't even okay. imagine if that happened. That's really funny you thought that. <laughs> That's my sequel, my preferred sequel, please. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. So a lot of this early scenes, it's, you know, setting up relationships. So we've got Lucy meeting Max at the video store and asking for a job. David and his cronies kind of lurking about. Michael making eyes at Star, you know, basically stalking her. Yeah. It's it's mildly uncomfortable in a contemporary context. And then, yes, we've got the Frog Brothers, uh, Edgar, who is played by Corey Feldman, and Alan, who is played by Jameson Newlander. And they're kind of the resident vampire buffs in town. I will say, so, um, because I, <laughs> uh, in this article that I pulled from the production, um, they talk about, like, the, how the whole cast is basically holed up at a Hollywood Inn. Mm-hmm. And Schumacher's like, a Alex Bunter apparently called it um basically a rave in the, in in the hotel. Schumacher goes, "Yeah, take a bunch of 13-year-olds and a bunch of 18-year-olds and put them in a hotel. Um there were chaperones for the 13-year-olds, but well, I'm not going to say another word about the 18-year-olds." That being said though, I mean like Corey Feldman's come up front about like how he fucked up a line on, he, like, uh, on set one day because he had been using coke the night before. And I'm like, mm-hmm. "You were 15, man." Yeah. Oof. Yeah, the substance abuse issues were prevalent this you know this is a film that is partially sponsored by cocaine yeah (laughs) and i think it's just it's really tragic when you dig into some of the backstory of the two Corys and the fact Mm -hmm. that they they did not have good showbiz lives and Mm -hmm. of course haim has died at a very early age and there's there's just a lot of darkness around like sexual assault and drug use in their respective lives Mm -hmm. yeah and I mean, I think at this point, I mean, even I was known. Like, Schumacher says that he knew that whatever Haim was going through was not good. Like even during filming of this movie, mm-hmm. how he was fifteen at that time. I think he was fourteen. Yeah, uh, Feldman would have been fifteen because he was born in seventy one, and I'm they're filming this in eighty six. So right, maybe he was fourteen going on fifteen. There we go. Never, nevertheless, he was using cocaine, like, like the night before filming. Yeah. I'm intrigued because, like, obviously there's a lot of queer reading potential in this film. And I think mm-hmm. most people focus on the relationship between David and Michael. But I actually feel like Sam is the one who comes off as most queer coded for me. Mm-hmm. Not just because we have a Rob Lowe poster in the bedroom, <laughs> the fact that he needs his mom to tuck him in, the way that he dresses, which is obviously not a appropriate for the new place that they're living and Mm -hmm. is maybe just reflective of who the character was but it all comes off as like cute baby gay Mm. yeah he's also i mean i don't want to flamboyant seems like the wrong word but he is a very animated Mm preteen or teenager Mm -hmm. compared to michael's like stoic uh, pale and tragic uh uh, (laughs) demeanor (laughs) he seems like he's kind of like on the cusp in a lot of things like he's still very young in a lot of ways like you were saying like getting tucked in and not you know turn not closing the closet door or like seeing and taking a bubble bath you know what i mean and just he brings like a very innocent kid nature to the film whereas everyone else is just kind of very serious right but but you can i mean if you want to read edgar and frog as queer too you can also view them as like oh hey like we're the two outcast gay kids in the town right welcome new gay kid Mm. it does feel like that right i mean the reason that they band together is because they have a shared love of comics and i do love that there's almost an indoctrination scene yeah (laughs) for both like david and michael it's like okay well you got to ride this motorcycle and drink this 
bottle of booze mm-hmm. slash secretly my blood. Mm-hmm. Whereas with these preteens, it's so much more innocent. It's proved that you know comics history. Know, and so then cute. I'll let you into my secret club. Um, it's horror Twitter today. It's gatekeeping. <laughs> oh when oh I, God, it is I, was like, I was like, why are they gatekeeping him? This is bullshit. I mean, oh no, ridiculous. But I do like how they talk about the lore of vampires through comic books instead of yes. some ancient 300 year old vampire who tells his story or like some old ass book made of human flesh like i love that it's comics i think that's so fun and this is very much part of the counterculture element that this film is bringing in right Mm -hmm. it's saying Mm -hmm. videos and comic books are what the kids are looking at these days yeah so we want to bring that element in and say Mm -hmm. well you can get your horror knowledge from these new texts as well Mm -hmm. yeah because even like i'm thinking of fright night where it's like oh i get all of my horror knowledge from peter vincent the late night aged horror host who is like basically (laughs) getting shoved off because he's not contemporary anymore Mm -hmm. here it's like read this vampire comic you'll you'll learn everything you need to know mm-hmm. <laughs> and like that's a very serious comic you're talking about there like i don't <laughs> oh my god <laughs> it's so funny it's great so good okay so let's jump ahead to michael and david's sort of big scene because yeah we use star to get michael onto this motorcycle yeah. race they go through the beach through the woods into the fog almost over a cliff and then we're into this hideout which is the sunken hotel and we've got david playing tricks on michael with the chinese food and then he drinks this bottle of very red wine even though star is like maybe don't Hey, I will say, though, th- this sunken hotel, I mean, again, the, the, I know it was supposed to be, it's also like a cave. I, nevertheless, mm-hmm. it looks like early production design for Steven Spielberg's Hook, which is really appropriate given the title of the film. But it, it, it does <laughs> look very Peter Pan Lost Boysy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I just, it's a cool combination of just artifacts and a place to just hook up and get fucked up and hang out. Like it's and sleep right. on the ceiling. Yeah, it's very much <laughs> thrown together like a teenager. And I love how uh, the boom boxes in in the movie they go grab the boom boxes and listen to music. It's just mm-hmm. oh, it's so fun. Like I miss my boom box, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the technology that we don't have access to anymore. Yeah. yeah, but I do appreciate the how expedient it is in getting to the point. Like right. he drinks this blood i mean i'm sure well i mean i don't know how early in the film i think we're like before the 30 minute mark of this movie if not we're very close to it but yeah i like that we're like cool bam let's get him in yeah so a lot of people make note in the queer readings of this film that we start off with this kind of like a hallucinatory montage hallucinatory Mm -hmm. montage and it's star's face and then that switches and goes into david's face and I don't know. It, it's interesting when we talk about films as queer, and I think sometimes, Trace, you and I were bad at just conflating queer and gay, because I do think that there's almost a bisexual, well, not mm. almost, there's a bisexual reading of this film, because <laughs> it is very much a love affair between, ooh, do I want the bad boy, or do I want the ethereal girl? Yeah, that's true, but I, I also have like this image of him being like, hey, he sees Star's face in the fog, and he's like, ew, no, and then like David's face oh. shows up, and he's like, oh, oh. yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, yes. Billy Idol. Hmm. Sure. <laughs> Why not? No, but but you are right. You can absolutely view this as a, as a bisexual or pansexual text. Right. Well, and I do like how even just the costumes are very, uh, you know, the, the guys are wearing jewelry. They have long hair. Mm-hmm. They have makeup. Mm-hmm. They have tight pants. You know, they're not afraid to explore these types of looks that may be deemed more feminine. And it is very like David Bowie. Ask, oh, yes. but like yeah, it yeah. works it just works so well i don't think they're being trying to be overly masculine in a way but they still have this like masculine sort of like demeanor a lot of times but the costume and the hair and the makeup doesn't entirely reflect that all the time yeah yeah i came across an interesting piece that talked about the fact that one of michael's transition symptoms into being a vampire is that he starts to wear not just sunglasses very cool but also (laughs) an earring and of course there's like a long legacy of gay Mm. men wearing earrings on a certain ear to connote like it's kind of the hanky code only with earrings was okay that was a thing because i literally like i was always just told that like that was just how you could tell like, i thought that was something kids made up in school to be like oh if you get pierced on your left ear you're gay or whatever yeah. ear. maybe it's the right ear like you're gay yeah so here's the thing it it is your right ear but it is also an urban legend it's one of those weird things that everybody seems to know but nobody can really pinpoint it and huh. it's very much not a thing anymore also if you're watching this film closely michael wears it on his left ear so that would be suggestive of the wrong one if you're doing a queer reading right. but it's an it's an interesting thing nonetheless where you're just like oh that is an outdated queer kind of lexicon that doesn't mm. make sense to contemporary audiences but might have been very relevant to audiences of the day oh huh. yeah i mean i you saying that i had forgotten all about that but i remember that i guess urban legend or that kind of stereotype yeah. Um, from when I was younger, but I mean, now it's just like, it doesn't matter, like whatever, but, right. um, <laughs> also sometimes you can just though. wear an earring. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, when you, when you, when, you know, if you were, if you're gay, you, you had to worry about being, mm-hmm. and you were so closeted and having to be, find discreet ways to express yourself. Um, right. yeah, I totally forgot about that. Mm. Yeah, for for my coming of age, when I was uh, about to come out, it, the known signifier was if a man had an eyebrow ring. That was how you knew he was gay. I mean, even though, like, in the, the dialogue in this scene, though, like, David tells him, how far are you willing to go, Mike? Mm-hmm. So it almost sounds like a game of gay chicken, where it's like, you know, you put your leg on <laughs> your hand on each other's knee, and you keep uh, moving yes. up and up and up and up, and the first one to back off, like, that. that's what it reminded me of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gay chicken. It's just so funny too, right? Because a lot of the way that David acts is very, um, like it's, it's macho, but in a kind of false bravado sort of way where you're just like, yeah, but you basically just want to suck on this guy. But sure, go on and, and ride your motorcycle and wear your leather and be butch and so on, which is not to say you can't be both, but so much of what Kiefer Sutherland brings to this role to me is that kind of like, I don't know. There, there's a performativity to David's masculinity in this mm-hmm. film that I really like, and it it honestly just makes me wish that we were either doing the David and Michael storyline or that we were doing the Sam and the Frog storyline because mm. we don't get enough time with anybody for my liking. Mm, I I get enough of the David and Michael. I I would like more of the Sam and Frog stuff. Mm. Personal preference. Yeah. 
So before we move on to sort of like the next phase where Michael is like, believe vampiric, I do want to address this initiation where they're hanging off the bridge as the train goes by. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of the redux of the how far are you willing to go? Uh, only the dialogue switches and it becomes let go, let go, like basically stop trying to prevent what you actually are from coming out. A, I love the way that this looks. I think it is so fucking visually exciting and watching people fall into the fog and thinking that they're probably just dead is yeah. very exciting. So Michael eventually lets go and he falls and it transitions to him waking up in bed and folks, I read this as a post-coital scene. So it's like, I um, let go, and I wake up in bed the next day, and I am a changed man. Well, because we we don't see, because he just falls, and then it just it just fade cuts to mm-hmm. him falling into bed, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, we don't know. And also, it's because the 80s, they can't show these two men fucking. Oh, sure. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you know, the fact that a man drinks another man's blood as you said well, earlier, Marissa, it's like, okay, so, <laughs> the AIDS, the AIDS. I was thinking about that, though. So, I mean, okay, again, just the, the mere, because con- we're all like, okay, yeah, whatever. Vampires suck other people's blood, like, out of their neck, whatever. It, it's not, like, whatever. But <laughs> if you think about it, like, again, like, go up to someone and, like, put your mouth on their neck. Like, yeah. it's so intimate. Yeah, very yeah. intimate. Like, you're in the personal space. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little. Yeah. And yeah, so I mean, it's, again, but I mean, imagine like these fucking straight men. Like, oh, yeah, you, oh, you hey, if you want to drink someone's blood, you better be comfortable getting on their neck and giving them a real super hickey. Um, mm-hmm. I'd love to see all these uh, no homo guys try to <laughs> do that. Yeah. Real men suck blood. That's what we're saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Break boundaries, <laughs> physical boundaries. <laughs> Okay, so Michael has officially become a teenage boy because he uh, has bad breath and long nails and he's sleeping all day. I'm going to bring in a different reading. It's by Vryk Heiser called uh, Boys Beware of Vampire Punks Queerness in the Lost Boys. And I'll bring them in more at the end of the film because they have a pro-queer reading, even though like there's some yeah. conservative kind of family values that get restored at the end. But I did like this idea that the Lost Boys initially sets it up as, oh, well, Michael's really just becoming a teenager. Mm-hmm. Like he, he talks back to his mom. He doesn't want to babysit his younger right. brother. He wants to go out and fuck chicks and party all night. Cool. Teenager. Mm-hmm. I do like his mom, though, being like, we're still friends, right? Like, I mean, I, I, also very Gilmore Girlsy of this mother. <laughs> <laughs> I know. She's just so, she's so precious and so sweet and supportive. Like, she's trying her best, you know? She needs a wine mom friend. Like, she yes. needs yeah. to go out and meet another single lady and just get, like, hammered on red wine. <laughs> or smoke some of that weed that her dad right? grows in the backyard. Oh my god. Like, what is Grandpa doing all day? Is that how he manages this giant fucking house? He gets high and makes house? taxidermy. I, but yes. I think he's also preparing for vampires. Yeah. <laughs> As we learned at the end, yes. Yeah. Also, hey, Grandpa, do you want to warn us that this is like <laughs> a very shady town? Maybe give us a heads up. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Like, a heads up would have been great. And, I mean, I do like this, like, even his, 
career and role as a taxidermist plays into this whole duality of life and death. I love that. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's a very clever observation. I hadn't really made that. I just thought it was a, a kooky character trait that, again, lends the production design some extra oomph in this house. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Lucy is asking Michael if he can babysit younger brother Sam because she is going on a date with Max. And all I could think of was, Ma'am, you just started this job. Also, he's your boss. Like, it is not appropriate that he has asked you out. Yeah. It's a little creepy and a little quick. I mean, this is how you know that we've all become adults and we're very, like, stable and following the rules and things. Like, no, bosses should not date their employees. That is wrong. Well, I'm just like, don't fuck with my money. So, you know. Yeah, but to be fair, I mean, and, like, maybe this is, I don't know, it's just a rental store. It's not like it's some big corporation. (laughs) (laughs) Watch him have chains. That's what the sequel should have been. He had video (laughs) chains all over the U.S., run by other little lost boys <laughs> oh my god now i'm just imagining a sequel that's like the real vampire is blockbuster putting a mom and pop shop out of business yeah that's the real blood sucker okay so um yeah there's like this scene where michael hallucinates slash it doesn't that there are motorcycles running around the house that's fine whatever i do like the scene where he nearly attacks sam in the bath and the only reason he doesn't is because the family dog a husky Mm -hmm. nanook ends up biting him and this is where sam realizes ah shit my brother is a vampire so he calls Mm -hmm. the frog brothers for support it's such a pretty dog i love that dog in this movie oh yeah oh it's gorgeous yeah although it's like it's weird that we have two dogs in this movie that are both attack dogs in various circumstances (laughs) yeah they're like husky breeds i think (laughs) did we get buy one get one free kind of deal right i love thorn too and they talk about him as a hellhound like when they explain the the brothers explain the traits of the vampire like they have a hellhound that guards their master it's it's very comic booky though right yeah totally it's great (laughs) oh it is it all goes back to it you know It's so campy. Uh, Okay. So Sam calls the Frog Brothers and they kind of run him through vampire tests and he's like, shit, okay, we got a problem. And this is when Michael starts to have his own issues with levitation. And I will say this scene comedically is really good for me. Mm -hmm. So we've got uh, Lucy abandoning her date in a rush, not even telling Max what's going on. She just peels out of this parking lot. We've got Michael floating around like he's an extra (laughs) in Salem's lot. And we've got Sam calling everyone trying to figure out what the fuck is going on. This all really worked for me. No, it, it, th- this is the moment where the film hooked me, actually, because mm-hmm. it's just pandemonium happening. And again, watching Max just watch her, like, hightail mm-hmm. it to her car. <laughs> Too funny. It's a, this is this is a real funny and fun scene. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is also where the brothers kind of make this pact that they're going to try to protect Lucy by not telling her the truth. And uh, again, if we read this as a bit of a coming age film, then it makes sense that the kids would try to keep things from their mother who doesn't really understand what's going on because she's out of touch with the counterculture movement and mm-hmm. the teenagers and so on. But um just as an FYI, kids, if you let your parents know that weird shit is going down, it, it may help you in the future. I don't know. I mean, I definitely can relate to that 
to an extent. When I was a teenager, I mean, I was keeping secrets and going out and staying out and smoking and drinking and I was pretty bad. So, you know. Show of virtual hands, who who has snuck out of their house as a teenager? Oh my gosh. gosh I haven't. I've never done really? it. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I don't even think I could. I wouldn't like my, okay, no, you know what? My sister was the one who was sneaking out all the time. Like she had secret boyfriends. She was going to parties. She was breaking curfews. And because of that, I stayed at home. Mm. I watched Counter Strike on Saturday nights. <laughs> I, you know, had dinner with my parents oh, all the time. I love y'all. That's so sweet, though. Well, okay, no, no. I lived on the second floor. My window had a screen on it, so I would have to punch it out. <laughs> we had an alarm system, so every time any door like that led to the outside opened uh, in our house, it, it beeped. Yeah. And my parents' bedroom was right by the front door, so I literally had no option to escape my house. <laughs> well, sometimes I just didn't even come home. Or- or like, <laughs> oh, my mom would know. My my, my mom would know. <laughs> or like, I don't know. I mean, I just or you'd say you were spending the night at a friend's house and really yes. go out somewhere else, or go to that friend's house and you'd sneak out from there. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Marissa's like, I don't have to justify my sneaking. I, to no, you no, boys. no, no, Marissa. I, I, there's no doubt. I'm envious of you. No, I'm jealous. No. I wish I could have snuck out and done all this fun, cool shit, but I didn't. I mean, <laughs> I could. I partied a lot in high school, but I, it was, it was all because I watched The Lost Boys really young. Yeah. No, <laughs> I blame the movies. I blame this movie, but I mean, I. I kind of get that, though, just, like, wanting to figure your own stuff out, and, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and, and you get caught up with the wrong crowd, you know, and you move somewhere new, or you don't know a lot of people, or you went through something that not a lot of people can relate to, and then you find some people who are sort of on your wavelength a little bit, and you just get caught up in it, and... Uh, before you know it, you're in too deep. It's kind of like, it's sort of like this, it's kind of like an, an addiction. And I think that goes into like being a vampire, being, you know, driven by, or being a teenager and being driven by like lust or partying or rebellion, what have you, anything really. Mm-hmm. You just get caught up in stuff and your own ego and just doing what you want to do to feel good and have a good time and forget about the world, you know? (laughs) You're absolutely right. It is about the ego and the kind of narcissism. It's also about like these raging hormones. And I think that that's one of (laughs) the things that this film captures, right? Mm -hmm. It is addictive. Like you can understand why Michael is attracted to this lifestyle because he's got people who want to party with him. He's got this hot chick. He isn't contained by the rules, the oppressive rules of his mother's lifestyle, even though, let's be honest, she's pretty easygoing. Yeah, in she's a lot pretty of ways. chill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there's something to be said about the way that this film captures the sexy rebelliousness of it all. Mm-hmm. Am I coming around on this movie? What's happening? Right <laughs> <now>? <laughs> no, but that's what I'm saying. I mean, again, like, th- this is still a three-star film for me, but I enjoy. I, I had. I. I enjoyed watching this so much more because I wasn't waiting for whatever was supposed to blow me away. Like I thought there was something that was going to. Mm. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. So speaking of uh, blowing away and being rebellious <laughs> and going out, uh, we're up to the sex scene, folks. <laughs> 
Yeah, so this is when, you know, Michael sneaks off so that he can go and sleep with Star. So instead of staying behind and doing dinner and all that kind of fun stuff, uh, he ends up going off and having less sex. Okay, so I wrote in my notes, I was like, Michael goes to the cave and asks Star to help him, uh, and she kind of cries, and then they just fuck. Like, <laughs> Okay, honestly, I- like, that's... Teenage boys Marissa's do like, that. like, that's how all sex scenes that's typically somehow, No, that's what boys that's do. That's what boys do. That's what teenage boys do. And that's what guys do sometimes is they'll act like, oh, I care and I'll be there for you. And then they really just want to fuck you. Like, that's that's yeah. so common. She felt his tumescent member bursting out of his tight pants. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get back to Reginald's quivering member later. Is yes. it? <laughs> <laughs> no, but but like, like, hey, so you know, there, there's that whole rule in screenwriting where it's like, okay, if you take this scene out, does it make a difference in anything of the of the film? I would argue that you could remove this sex scene. We already know he likes her. The sex scene doesn't like add to their relationship because Star is not a character in this movie. Hmm. I think it shows her lack of loyalty towards David. Right. But she could very well be having sex with all these dudes. You don't know. Like, <laughs> maybe she's a slut just like her mother. Oh, wow. I'm not saying that. I mean, I <laughs> they could all be very fun to hook up with. I mean, look at this tr- look at oh, this. I'm cast. sure they are. So, you know, but they're busy having a circle jerk while she's sleeping with Lottie. <laughs> oh god. Like sorry, literally sleeping with Lottie. Okay, yes. I was like what? not fucking. No, Lottie's like 10, but it's just I think that it's a way to show her switching over her loyalty mm-hmm. and wanting to get out of the okay. lifestyle that she has been in. And it, it, she's kind of like a damsel at that point. Like, save me and Lottie, yeah. you know? Like, and, and, and that is what I don't like about it. Sucks, it. So, yeah, yeah. You, know what? you have convinced me the sex scene can stay. <laughs> <laughs> I still just, uh, yeah, I, I, I just don't care i don't care about them as a couple at all no they're not you're i still don't really root for them i don't i'm not like yeah they're together i mean it's a it's a tasteful sex scene it's quick it's cute it's weird that it's to the song of cry little sister i think again Mm -hmm. i mean what it was the the that's a drinking game of itself every time you hear that song in the movie but it goes back to these aspects of like this nuclear family and like i always thought that was kind of weird like as much as i love that song and how it sounds like the lyrics of it what you don't it's not a song to really have sex to it's really weird (laughs) well not straight sex either because isn't it a man singing about like how he wants to fuck this girl's brother I don't, I don't know. Is I, it? I saw the lyrics and, and somebody definitely said like, oh, here's the section where it's talking about how he wants to fuck the sister's brother. Oh, oh. Lord. I mean, maybe. I don't know. It's <laughs> the lyrics of it. I haven't read the whole lyrics, but even just like the cry little. It's yeah. so yeah. weird. The, the, one of the verses is, is cry little sister, thou shalt not fall. Come, come to your brother, thou shalt not die. Unchain me, sister, thou shalt not fear. Love is with your brother, thou shalt not kill. Okay, that's like way too religious and way too, Mm -hmm. like, brother-sister stuff for me. Just do an instrumental without the lyrics (laughs) for the sex scene. You know what I mean? Right? Yes, do a tasteful, just, you know, piano something, maybe with a violin. Yeah. Yeah, No. This movie is too punk for piano. (laughs) Fair, fair. But, I mean, I I think it does... 
serve a purpose and it is tasteful and it definitely makes sense in terms of how it comes about and how they hook up but it doesn't really make me root for them as a couple anymore or give more dimension to star it Mm -hmm. in a way only just limits her to being an accessory still but an accessory that has to be saved oh yeah so Mm. yeah And speaking of needing to be saved, this is actually right before we get Lucy going to check on Max and getting nearly bitten by Thorn the dog. Mm -hmm. This is fun. It it is fun, but it's one of those things where you're just like, wow, yeah, okay, so women in Jeopardy. That's what this movie likes to do, apart from, like, sexy boys. She hightails it and saves herself, so no one saves her. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she hops real quick over that fence. Mm -hmm. So I did get my timing messed up, and we are now at the dinner scene so it's technically david is showing michael hey we hang out in trees and then we eat people on the beach and oh yeah the flip side of that is also when we've got uh max over at dinner passing all of the vampiric tests that the frog brothers have set up so we're spilling uh holy water on his lap (laughs) we're feeding him garlic instead of what is it, salt or something? I, I think that's kind of my thing, is that I am so much more interested in this movie <laughs> than I am the the Michael initiation vampire stuff. And the irony, though, is that the, the Michael initiation vampire stuff is, the, is, like, what Joel Schumacher, like, added to the film. <laughs> yeah, but I think part of it is that we're, like, our attention is constantly being divided, so you mm-hmm. feel like you're not getting quite enough of either of those two things. If it was just Michael and David, you might feel differently. Maybe, maybe. I actually do like that scene, though, because it takes the stereotypical, you know, folklore of vampires and just, they knock, they try and, they take everything out of the book, you know? And they yet don't think about, oh, well, we invited him in. Maybe that's why. I just... No, no, so, but hey, has that... I've I actually never... Because that's the thing, right? So they invited him into his house, which means none of the normal vampire stuff works on him. I've never heard that before. Mm. Um, yeah, it's definitely a twist. Yeah, I mean... And also, I think Michael invites him in, so they may not have heard him do that no 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 no. i know that but i just i I, again like you know the whole thing in this movie is okay vampires don't have a reflection Mm -hmm. but because max is invited into this house he does have a reflection in mirrors in this house Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah that's the weird thing too i've never heard of that in vampire lore before Mm. i mean usually we appreciate it when they switch things up and kind of make it their own right it's it's not a critique it's just an observation like i'm just like oh like i mean it's a good because again like when he walks in he's like you're the man of the house i'm not gonna come in until you invite me and it's like okay well red alert right there obviously yeah so i do love that yeah we get the scene of him passing but yeah then at the end it's like "Uh, you invited me into your house none of that is gonna Mm work Oh, it's it's real campy too how like the brothers try every little thing and it's also oh, yeah. it kind of plays on that aspect of you know you're being you're a preteen and your mom you don't have a your dad's not around and this guy's trying to move in on your mom and mm-hmm. you don't like you don't like him it's like this darker version of that trying to scare him away or make him look bad so it works well within the context of the mom not thinking her son is just like crazy. She's like, why don't you let me just date? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I loved all of that. Mm -hmm. 
in Fright Night. <laughs> Dick move. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no. It's, hey, it's your opinion, man. It's cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I love Fright Night, too, you know? So I think both have their their pros and cons and like both are really fun movies so right yeah yeah i think this actually made me appreciate fright night more because i was like oh okay i think i was taking a lot of the comedy in fright night for granted and then when i saw this i was like ah here's another way of doing it where you can balance the horror and the comedy it's just in a different way and i just happen to prefer fright night Mm -hmm. more yeah no that's fine i'm the same way Okay, so after the eventful dinner, so this is failed date number two for Lucy and Max, uh, (laughs) in the morning star arrives and she basically is like, I am here to explain myself. And uh, (laughs) this is all so boring, if not for Corey Haim being delightful as he's trying to sleep and reacting at the same time. She's a vampire and don't don't tell me she's still a good person. (laughs) I loved it i was loving this i actually really really like Corey Haim's performance in this he's film really yeah good. he's great he, in this movie he, he's like the burst of energy compared to michael's like doom and gloom yes yeah, yeah. they're really good I, character foils for sure and he's not like a super annoying little brother i like i like their yeah. their relationship they're really really cute and they lo- you can tell they love each other even when like they're going through these tough times or annoying times i, I think their dynamic mm-hmm. is actually really sweet right and it seems like their real life dynamic was actually very similar, where Jason Patrick was kind of looking after Corey Haim during the oh. shooting. I can't help but wonder if this film would work better for me if there was a more emotive or interesting performance in this Michael, Michael role, like if it wasn't Jason Patrick, because I do find him quite flat. Mm. Ah, uh, but see, I wonder if that's an int- int- intentional choice, though. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't think it's an accident that he's playing it like this. It's hard to say. Like, I, I don't know enough about him as an actor to say, oh, well, this is an off kilter performance for him. But I do think in the world of the film, it is very deliberate. But I don't know. It, it's hard for me to be like, what does Star see in this guy? What does David see in this guy? He's um, boring. I don't know. Yeah, There's pretty. something about like a an attractive face and a calm and cool personality, like a guy who doesn't have to go above and beyond to get your attention <laughs> and isn't super over the top. And um, I don't know. I like guys who are a little bit more chill instead of having to be the center of attention all the time you know what i mean and to to quote maya rudolph in big mouth the dumb ones pound the hardest oh my god god (laughs) oh my god that's so funny and so true they have have to be good at something right Oh boy, oh boy. Okay, before we go too far down that garden path, let's come back to this. Uh, Okay, so so Star and Michael and Sam recruit the Frog Brothers. They steal Grandpa's car. They head off to the hotel so that we can rescue Laddie, uh, who we have not mentioned is played by Chance Michael Corbett. Who could care? This this is not a character. This is a child in vampire makeup. Why is he there? (laughs) That's the thing, too. They're literally... Okay. 
There's no reason to have Lottie and Lottie, Lottie, yeah, Lottie, this child <laughs> in this movie, except to like for this scene, so that we need to go back. Yes. Well, but it's also like a reason to be like, okay, well, why isn't Star doing anything? Because she's <laughs> looking after this useless child. Exactly. <laughs> I really, I never understood. Lottie's presence. Well, yeah, like why? Why did they give Lottie blood? Mm-hmm. I just don't even why. Maybe I don't know. Do you think that Star was supposed to be the mother to these boys? It's and maybe. Max yeah. was like, no. "You suck at your job, so now I'm going to find another one." No, because I I I, th- I think David turned Star of his own accord without mm. Max's input. Because she says, like, oh, yeah, Michael was supposed to be my first kill, and he was supposed to complete my transformation. Mm. But then Max kind of, I mean, we don't we don't hear this, but Max is the one who told David to turn Michael, so that, mm-hmm. that immediately put the kibosh on that plan. Mm. I, I don't think that dismisses what Marissa is suggesting, though, because I could see Max saying, okay, well, you're attracted to this girl. How about we get her on side by turning her maybe younger brother or a boy that she babysits into a vampire? Because that's literally what his plan is. Instead of just turning Lucy into a vampire, he has to turn her sons first. Mm -hmm. Max is not a good planner. If you remake (laughs) this movie, the opening scene is uh, star babysitting Lottie and getting attacked by vampires. There you go. Yeah. I'm so... Lottie drove me crazy. I I never liked this character. Yeah, Lottie sucks. And And Lottie is on the cover of the fucking DVD. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's like... Because you can be a preteen and super cool and party all night and never die also. That's not even... I mean, is like 10 a (laughs) preteen? I think that's that's where... Because, you know, because Star is like the windy of this story, right? Yes. Uh, and so yeah. it's like, it's supposed to be like, oh, like the Lost Boys are this wide range of ages. So we have to throw a kid in there. Okay. Ugh, don't bring your classic literature into this. The <laughs> children's <laughs> literature. Nobody wants to talk about that, Trace. Oh, yeah. That's a joke because I have a YA podcast. All right. Uh, okay. <clears throat> yeah. So this is the part where we get the great visual of uh, these Lost Boys hanging upside down as they sleep. And then and we stake Marcos and it just goes to shit. We have blood, blacky blood oozing mm-hmm. and shooting everywhere. The vampires wake up. David grabs Sam. He almost gets away. We've got the hand burning. Fucking love the shot of David with the single tear. Yeah. After he gets burned. Love it. I think this scene is great. That wasn't planned at all. Like the contacts apparently were so painful and just yeah it was like back in the day there weren't like soft contacts these were yeah they were hard plastic paint painted pieces of plastics that put in your eye and his his eyes were so irritated they started naturally like tearing up and they thought oh that's a great shot so that's great Kiefer keep doing it keep crying keep Keep suffering love that pain (laughs) so I've never disliked Kiefer Sutherland but I've never been like oh yeah Kiefer Sutherland but like oh he's great well, yeah, mm-hmm. as a person, I think I, I read interviews with him and I'm like, God, he sounds like a nice guy. Yeah. <laughs> like, I just want to hang out Aww. with him. Yeah, he's Canadian. Yeah, totally. <laughs> no, he's I mean, one of the interesting things for me, having seen this film so late, is that I saw him play a derivation of this role in Stand By Me, where yeah. he's basically mm-hmm. the punk, you know, 
guy who's gonna fuck you up only he's not a vampire in that movie mm. so when i did eventually see this i thought oh they just put him in prosthetics and he's given the same performance mm-hmm. i mean look keeper southern plays a great villain but we all know his like his big one the, the best role he's ever played is bob wolverton in freeway i like was that, just that's about just to say freeway. <laughs> previous episode that's not all i did to grandma oh my god that movie <laughs> That movie, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> but there are a lot of really cool practical effects in that scene. Yeah. Oh, when Marco just gushes blood yeah. after getting staked, it's awesome. Yeah. It's so good. So, it's good. so good. And bye bye, Alex Winter. It's it's so good. Yes. R.I.P. in this movie because he's done so. Yeah, he's the first one out. Mm-hmm. Well, he had to go off and prep for Bill and Ted. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's it's interesting too because he dies the stereotypical mm-hmm. death of a stake through the heart, right? So, yep. th- I like how they knock that out first. Yeah, we'll give it to you because you're expecting it, and then we'll give you more interesting things later. Yeah, and even the Frog Brothers, like when they talk about the comic books uh, and how the vampires could die, it's like they never go like one way every time, you know, like they could explode. There's there's like some foreshadowing there that you know that there's going to be uh, some different kills and some different fight scenes that you may not be expecting, but they do that traditional one first, which I kind of like. Right. And that's that's really where we're at in this film. So we try to let Lucy know what's going on. She thinks that it's all about Max and the surrogate father figure kind of deal. And then we go into defensive prep mode. So we close up all of the windows. We start making garlic holy water in the bath and we're getting ready for battle. And that's more or less what the rest of the movie is. Yeah, it's like so, Home Alone style. They just booby uh-huh. trap the shit out of their house, the grandpa's house. I thought Home... I mean, obviously, I, we all know this came out before Home Alone, but yes, mm-hmm. like, I, it, I'm like, oh, Home Alone, like, remove the vampire aspect and this is what he's doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Can I mean, this bathtub kill, by yeah. the way. It's great. Yeah. I love that oh. we think it's over and then it goes on and gets better mm-hmm. the the blood that just pours out of the pipes mm-hmm. it floods so the bathroom good. it is so aw- i was yeah. watching this and i was like holy shit yep. this yeah. rocks that's what i'm saying <laughs> like that last the last part of the film is so much fun yeah i fully agree with you like the last 20 minutes i'm like all in yeah. on this movie well, it's because there's also no time to breathe because we've done all the character development. We've gotten everybody to where they need to be. So now it's like, cool, let's pay it off. Let's just go balls to the walls, get rid of these fucking vampires. It's like death, 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 death. <laughs> well, and it's weird because like as much as I love this film, it's very visual in a lot, a lot, a lot of ways. But I'm not really emotionally invested in these characters at all. So, you know, even with these vampires who die at the end, a part of me isn't like, hell yeah, Michael, or hell yeah, Star. It's just like, whoa, that death is really cool and executed really well. Even Frog and Edgar, though, it's like, okay, yeah, like, yeah, they're they're the cute kids that, like, want to, like, kill vampires. But it's like, I don't really... Mm -mm care about them it's just cool to see all this mayhem go down mm-hmm. yeah like if we lost any one of them you know, oh yeah i wouldn't pa- care pause a beat for for grief and then move on yeah, uh, yeah. like pour a beer out and move on it right it really or pour a dr pepper out like the ones from 
grandpa's fridge. But I think, uh, I don't think that they have had previous experience actually killing vampires or executing them because they're still so shocked by everything. Like they're prepared (laughs) and they know what to do, but they're like, Oh my God, the aftermath, you know what? Like they're not expecting how like grotesque it actually is. It's it's a childlike wonder. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. It's like these fantasies and adventures that you want to live out, but then you don't realize how hardcore they are until like you actually do them. (laughs) Oh shit. I'm killing someone right now. (laughs) (laughs) And compare the reactions to, again, the bathtub kill, but then when we get the stereo kill. <laughs> oh, yes. My love. <laughs> Which, my God. Like, an, an, another one where it's, oh, we think it's over, but then he just blows up. Yes. <laughs> I love that this is basically Sam taking care of business all by himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like him growing up in a way. But, I mean, that scene is so much fun, too. And a little bit of pyrotechnic work. Pretty cool. It, but it kind of says something, though, right? So like the, these two deaths are awesome. And it's not that I don't like the Michael David fight, but it's almost anticlimactic it compared is, to the other two. It's so easy, and it's over too quickly. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but that's because we're waiting to get Max in here. Which, again, mm. like, I, I think I saw that like, Kiefer Sutherland, like, out of the main characters, has the least amount of lines in this movie, and probably the least amount of screen time, too. Uh, but he makes up for it in charisma. Yeah, oh, I mean, there's sure. something about, like, their their stamina and their presence and just the way that they hold themselves and the ways, the way that they look that radiates their characters so much. And if they talk too much, I think it would take away from the uh, appeal and the, Mm. their whole mystique. But yeah, he has like one liners at the end of scenes a lot, I think, but I mean, Mar- what was it? Uh, Dwayne, not Marco, but like... The other one is Paul. You, you know the vampires. Paul, <laughs> Paul and Dwayne like barely talk at all. And they're just yes. so beautiful. And it's like, are y'all props too? I mean, I don't know. Basically. It's just yep. so... They're male models that we move from scene to scene <laughs> to make myself <laughs> seem cool. Right? It's yeah. just, it's kind of strange. But I mean, in a way, I do kind of like that they're not overly talkative. But yeah, I don't know. It, it's kind of interesting that they took a lot of those choices because the dialogue is extremely minimal. But it still works. I kind of like his death at the end. What, we're talking about David? Yeah, how he's impaled by the antlers. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's a different form of the traditional stake through the heart and dies on a table of death, ultimately. <laughs> I mean, there's I like so many bones on that well, table. Well, also, because he's room. the only vampire that doesn't, like, out of the three, I guess, that doesn't get, like, melty or torn apart, because mm-hmm. hypothetically, if there was, a like, a sequel soon after this movie, right. they could have brought him back. Yeah, Which, of course, was the plan. Yeah. Yes. So for those reasons, like, I like it and I see it, but I, I also can understand how it's anticlimactic. But I wonder if it was supposed to be this whole emotional thing, because again, the song comes back. Mm-hmm. And it's, lo- it's his lover. It's his lover. He just killed. <laughs> yeah, there's like an emotional part going on there. Yeah, because this is really a sex death scene, right? Like we're penetrating mm-hmm. David, mm-hmm. we're penetrating our lover with these antlers. And then the way that Schumacher shoots this, uh, so I'm going to bring Kaiser back in a couple more times as we close this out. But yeah. Kaiser says, there's a tragic grace note to David's death. Mm-hmm. He looks nearly angelic. Yeah. The camera lingers on Michael as he wrestles with what he's done. Yeah, it's almost like there's a relief there or something. But I would 
argue we get something similar when Max comes in. Because Max walks in, goes straight to David's corpse, and I don't know. Like, it's not... There's just a look there that's like, mm-hmm. my child. Yeah, is it fatherly? Is it, you know, as we talked something about, a kind else? of predatory, like, you were, you were the the first you were the young boy that i turned kind of deal but mm-hmm. but that's the other thing though right because he as far as we know max has only turned teenage boys into mm-hmm. vampires there is definitely something icky about that yeah i've seen some people speculate that he only turned david and he didn't condone mm. the other ones it was david who then you know propagated the other ones because he wanted like cool friends but that has to be something that you as a viewer bring to the reading because right. i don't think it's supported by the text because the story that I'm going with is that Max is this very wealthy video rental store owner. <laughs> As one is, yes. And he was and he was David's sugar daddy. Right. That being said, though, when it comes to Max, um, I I simultaneously don't like how quickly he's dispatched, but I also love how he's dispatched. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This grandpa driving a car into his house is just... Oh, I love it. It's so funny. It's hilarious how, like, he has these house rules and doesn't want, you know, Michael and Sam running around the house or anything and don't touch this or don't touch that. But, like, sure, I'm just going to (laughs) drive my car through my house and not care. It's a very, like, stoner old man thing to do. And then he goes and gets a drink. He's like, ugh. I mean, I guess we didn't talk about it much either, but I mean, we have to like talk about it. Maybe there's not really much to talk about, but I, I, I love that at least we get the mom learning the truth. We get her seeing her right. boyfriend with his mask face and she relents. She accepts to save her children, mm-hmm. which is where I guess the, the, the family values that you're talking about, Joe. So sad. She would like do anything for her sons. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, that's an interesting point, Trace, because Kaiser brings that up by suggesting the positive queer reading to this or to the reveal that Max is actually the true villain of the film. Kaiser says the true villain wasn't the queer punks, but the straight business owner preying on the community while hiding behind the obvious outsiders. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Okay. I can go for that. Yeah, I agree mm-hmm. with that. Mm-hmm. So Max impaled in. I love that the body goes directly into the fireplace, which is a logical <laughs> place to burn things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we'll, we can repair the rest of the house, but it's good that we didn't destroy too much more of it with fire. Um, so the danger is done. And then, of course, if you want to read it from the conservative point of view, it's the unification of the family values. We've got Michael and Star and... Fuck if I know Lottie hanging out there as a <laughs> nuclear family. Hopefully Lottie would just like go home after that. I don't know. Go find your parents. Yeah, like, like just ship them off. Go. Lottie, who are who you? Are Where you? do you come from? No. Do you have a place we can send you back <laughs> Why to? Why are you here? Why are you here, Lottie? <laughs> who invited you? Give him the milk carton with his face on it. Put, drop him off at the boardwalk and just say, hey, just wave this around a bit. <laughs> <laughs> or better yet, put him to work in the video store. Oh, he yeah. can sell comics along with the Brothers. The video store is without an owner now, so yeah, <laughs> Lucy's gonna own that shit. Oh yeah, oh, Lucy's yeah. taking that shit over. We're turning this town around. I think Max had the foresight because he, again, he he didn't think he was gonna die. He had the foresight to be like, okay, let me put Lucy in my will. <laughs> that should have been how it ended, actually. Yeah, because I'm pretty sure this whole movie takes place over like three days or something crazy. Yeah. Yes. Like it doesn't last very long. Like things get going real quick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think that they've been in town for even like a week 
you know? These people are trouble. They show up, they just start killing people. Yeah. They're, they're killing respectable business owners. Like, it's been a weekend. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it goes by so quick. But the ending is just, I get what you mean about how, like, it could have been a stronger fight off with both Max and David. But I think there was another alternative ending too, where like Max may not have died and like they wanted to put like a mural on the side of the boardwalk and of him from like the 1900s or something and (laughs) his family. I don't know, alluding some way that he'd been around forever. Yeah, there was a couple of alternate endings and they had this Lost Girls sequel in mind. So it's really, from a writing perspective, it's... It's interesting that they had the choices that they did because I feel like some of this was maybe in the back of their head mm-hmm. like as a possibility. Yeah. But it still worked. I mean, it wraps up pretty good as yeah. a single story, but they took it into sequels um, that I have not <laughs> seen. And I don't know if I want to, but... But they're sequels that came out like twenty years later, later, and like, but 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 I don't even think I would call them a legacy sequel. I mean, they are because it's like you know twenty years later, but it's like, I mean, they're directed video sequels with only the Corys in the first one because I think Corey Hamid died by the time the third one was being made. I think he's the only person from this film in it. Feldman's definitely yeah Feldman. I didn't know Haim was in one of them. Is he? I I think think he's in the second one. Yeah, I think he's in the second one. Maybe. Maybe. Oh fuck! Hold on, actually, let me. So, okay, what 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 happens? So Corey Haim is in the second one, but during the closing credits. Weird. Uh, okay. Okay. Oh, oh my God, y'all. Okay, in a mid-credit scene in Lost Boys: The Tribe, Edgar encounters Sam Emerson, Corey Haim, now a vampire. They exchange some dialogue and charge at each other as the credits resume. Oh no, that's absurd. That is absurd. And again, the third one is Lost Boys: The Thirst, but they can't have Corey Haim in it because he'd die by the time it it was being filmed. So in the third movie, Sam is dead. It basically says Edgar visits the grave of Sam Emerson, whom Edgar was forced to kill when he turned into a vampire. So he basically right. is led to believe that he killed him between movies. Right. What a terrible betrayal of characters. <laughs> Boo. They've been trying to get a CW TV show of this off the ground. They filmed a pilot. It didn't go to air. And now we're apparently getting a whole new movie with yes. Noah Duke and that bratty Jaden Martell kid. Yeah, that news um, came out recently. Oh, no, it's it's filming. It's not out. Oh, no, no. The news came out. The news is, yes. Correct. Okay, I sorry. I just <laughs> don't even think this film can be touched. And I've said that before, and I've been proven wrong, especially with Argento Suspiria, because I really liked the remake. Yeah. But yes. this one, I just... I don't know. I I just, we'll see. Yeah, Trace and I speculated about different directions that could go in the Patreon newsletter about this. Mm-hmm. And the thing that we kind of came to consensus about was that it cannot be set in the 80s. Yeah. Oh, I think they're burnt out on the 80s, right? With Stranger Things and all these oh other God, throwbacks. You gotta think so. Surely. Apparently, it, it, the details on this new remake have been kept a secret, but it has been described as being set in the present day. Okay. There we go. So there's that at least. But I mean, yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's one of those things where you're like, well, I don't have, I don't, I'm not optimistic, but I, I would love to be proven wrong. You know, like you yeah. want a remake to be good. It's just like, yeah, it's hard to be optimistic sometimes. Well, it's, it's going to be like Fright Night too, where 
Like, I'm sorry, I can't imagine Noah Jupe and Jaden Martell making fuck eyes at each other. No. It's not going to be queer. No, that's the thing. It's like the the sexual chemistry and the fucking pheromones that just radiate Mm -hmm. off of this film. I don't know if you can replicate this. Yeah, like you need a movie that is DTF and... Good luck recapturing that magic. Good and in it the is year of magic. our Lord, twenty twenty two. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's funny because there's the Vanity Fair article that has a subline that says, "Can there be death by stereo with AirPods?" <laughs> like, Probably not, dude. Probably not. But you know what? We've seen this with. Hell, I yeah. was introducing my mom the other day to the new Chucky film. Not the sci-fi series, but the one that came out a couple yeah, of years the, ago. Uh, the 2019 remake. Yeah, and it's just, that's how it's going to be for a long time. And we have all these remakes and all these sequels coming out, and they're all modernized. And I, it's like something we kind of got to get used to and roll with. And sometimes it mm-hmm. works and sometimes it doesn't. So Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We're hard advocates of we will give it a try mm-hmm. and hope. That it is good because if you go into every remake thinking, oh, well, this is going to be garbage. It's like, well, you still got that original. It's not like they're taking it away from you. Yeah, totally. I agree. Yeah. It's it's there for sure. And it's so much fun. Well, I mean, again, if they can at least make it fun, by all means. Like, let, let's sure. have a fun vampire what movie. What if the saxophone mm. guy comes back and is a vampire in it? I mean, you just never know. Oh my know. god, he's the ringleader. Yes, that'd be kind of amazing. So, I hope that there's some, like, really gimmicky <laughs> stuff in there that are throwbacks. That's one reason I watch the remakes is, like, I'm interested in throwbacks and references a lot to mm-hmm. see how they adapt and what they're doing but there is a novelization of the lost boys that i want to try and track down <laughs> chaser's story about orson card that book that oh you my god yeah make sure it's so not funny. the orson scott card lost boys I know, and uh, but it's so funny mormon propaganda i would love uh. to find that novelization though but yeah oh i mean yeah. we'll see how it goes but the lost boys the original is just it's so special very special yeah. film. Well, and you know what? That's a good segue into that is The Lost Boys. So, Marissa, what are your final thoughts on this film? Oh, I fucking love it still. Always. <laughs> Always and forever. Always love it. I can watch this movie anytime. It will always make me laugh and swoon and marvel at just the it's a capture of the times i love the movie it's just a it's a feel-good movie for me in a lot of ways so i'm really glad that we got to talk about it and it's just one of those cult classics that'll last a long time and it'll be fun to see how you know these new filmmakers take this and roll with it with new blood we'll see yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm really glad I got to revisit this. I, 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 I've been putting it off for so long because I was just like, yeah, I really just didn't enjoy it that first time I watched it, and I, I did enjoy it a lot more this time. I still don't think it's like amazing, but I had a lot of fun with mm-hmm. it, and I, I certainly see the appeal now. Whereas 14 years ago, I didn't really see it. So um, it's progress. Yeah, I like it. And for me, yeah, I mean, sadly, I'm coming in on the lower end of this spectrum. That's okay. It, it doesn't quite work for me, but I can understand why it works for other folks 
I think my issues are just it, there's too many characters and we don't get quite enough of anybody. And yeah, mm-hmm. you know, I I wish that Jason Patrick was a bit more dynamic. I wish that I was getting more Kiefer Sutherland because he is so good. And the tricky queer dynamics are really at play for me. You can see Joel Schumacher trying to push up against the restrictions of like, you know, the post-AIDS crisis and the conservative right. family values and that sort of thing. It can make for interesting discussion, but as a film, uh, yeah. It it's just not for me. I I mean I don't think there's a lot of well no I'm gonna leave it with that yeah you're, that's fine <laughs> that is fine <laughs> there we go <laughs> oh man okay well before we announce that we're covering next week Marissa where can people find you on the social medias you can find me I'm on Twitter my handle is just Marissa underscore Mirabal M I R A B A L and I'm on Instagram at marissa underscore mira that's private though but you can shoot your shot and see if i'll accept you (laughs) if you look like jason patrick or the saxophone guy shoot that shot (laughs) um if you look like one of those four vampires especially um michael or paul or Dwayne, yeah no okay Yeah, you can find me. Just Twitter's fine. I'm, you know, not on there all the time, but yeah. And be sure to listen to her podcast, Black Magic Coven. Yes. <laughs> well, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at Horror Queers. Join our Facebook Horror Queers group to hang out with other listeners. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered and look at all of our lists. And, of course, go to our YouTube channel to watch, well, you can watch our Microqueers recordings or, uh, because right now Microqueers is being replaced by Chucky reviews, uh, go watch us talk about Chucky with our Chucky dolls. So those are really fun. Mm-hmm. If you have a moment, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. Apple Podcasts is the best one, though. And if you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. So go subscribe because we will have episodes on the I Know What You Did Last Summer series, Sci-Fi Slumber Party Massacre Remake, Antlers, Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City, and an audio commentary on the original Resident Evil from 2002. Joe? Yes? What are we talking about next week? (laughs) I feel like it's a long time coming, but people probably won't think that we were ever going to cover it. But uh, I'm feeling a little TV hungry, Trace. (gasps) And also, even though we've (laughs) talked about a number of vampire texts recently, we're going to kind of stay in that wheelhouse. So we are going to be talking about... Buffy the Vampire TV show. (laughs) Sorry, Buffy the Vampire Slayer TV show. Uh, Mm -hmm. Even though this episode does not actually have vampires in it, really, we're going to be covering Once More with Feeling on its 20th anniversary. Woo! All right, for all you people who don't know Buffy. (laughs) Are there anybody? Really? I don't know. I mean, honestly, I think a lot of the younger people don't really know Buffy. So everyone, this is season six, episode seven. Go find it wherever it's streaming, because I'm sure it's somewhere. It is, yes. And yeah, I mean, that's it. It's a musical episode. It's fucking fantastic. I listened to this soundtrack on repeat for a full year. Mm -hmm. So... Ah, yeah. Come back for the 20th anniversary of Buffy's wonderful musical episode. But until next week, we can cross out the Lost Boys. Indeed. And cross out 150 episodes of Horror Queers. (laughs) Ah.